Jack. Levi. Are we the crazy ones? Reject modernity. Embrace tradition. Hello everyone, it's Jack, and welcome to another episode of Are We The Crazy Ones, the podcast where we travel to the fringes of culture and tell you what they look like. This is one of the stranger episodes that we've done, and that's really saying something. Do any of the following things appeal to you? Telepathy, ghosts, the Holy Grail as a metaphysical entity, sexual magic, alchemy, or maybe Atlantis? Irrespective of your answer, it's worth listening to this episode where we give our thoughts on revolt against the modern world, the 1934 opus of the self-described super-fascist Julius Evola. Evola was born in Rome in 1898, failing to complete an engineering degree as he didn't want to be tainted by bourgeois professionalism. Instead, a career in mystical fascism beckoned. After serving as an artillery officer in the First World War, Evola developed an interest in spiritualism, transcendentalism, the occult, and Tibetan tantric yoga. In fact, he credited reading early Buddhist texts with convincing him not to commit suicide at the age of 23. Now, experiments with psychedelics didn't yield the spiritual insights he was after. Instead, the burgeoning Italian fascist movement caught Evola's attention. Living in Italy while Mussolini was forming fascism, Evola was best described as a critical supporter. First describing fascism as a laughable revolution, Evola opposed its plebeian tendencies, its nationalism, and its lack of a spiritual centre. He did, however, see in it the potential to revive Europe's pre-Christian magnificence, so long as it was infused with the right elitist spirituality and respect for strong caste systems. An example of his unique brand of political activism is his participation in the Ur Group, an Italian organisation formed in 1927. This group aimed to transform the individual members' identities into a superhuman state, thereby bringing out their magical powers, which they would use to influence the world. Such influence would include bringing a soul to the fascist movement and introduce to it ancient Roman religion. Evola's reservations about fascism didn't stop him from supporting the fascist powers in the Second World War, during which Mussolini praised Evola's writings as constituting a uniquely Roman racism. Evola, however, found Mussolini's Italian fascism too soft and sought an audience in Nazi Germany, delivering lectures there and spending World War II working for the Sicherheitsdienst, the intelligence agency for the SS. Even though Evola knew Heinrich Himmler personally, the Nazis didn't entirely trust him. Regarding his aristocratic tendencies, and opposition to biological racism, among other things, as suspicious. The SS had a dossier on the so-called reactionary Roman, recommending that they impede his efforts in Germany. Evola's support for the fascist regimes caught up with him eventually. While in Vienna, he had a habit of wandering around outside during bombing raids. This was so that he could ponder his destiny. In 1945, a piece of shrapnel pondered back and transected his spinal cord, paralysing him from the waist down for the rest of his life. After the war, Evola argued for a European organic imperium and associated with Italy's neo-fascist organisations. So that's a bit of background to the man behind this episode's book, Revolt Against the Modern World. It's a wonderfully descriptive title. The modern world is degenerate, the result of thousands of years of involution, a fall from the past golden age of immortality, a strong caste system, clear gender roles, virile magic. 
The book is split into two parts. The first establishes Evola's underlying philosophy, and the second traces the degeneration of our world through history. Today, we're concerning ourselves with the first book. The second will come later. Existence is divided into a world of being and a world of becoming. The former is unchanging, eternal, masculine, and causally affects events in the world of becoming. In bygone, traditional, better times, virile, sacred kings performed rites to keep society in communion with the world of being. A strong caste system prevented the encroachment of feminine chaos. The aristocratic were initiated and literally lived forever. And all this was good. But over time, things fell apart, our link to the world of being weakened. Eventually, we found ourselves in the Dark Age, the Kali Yuga, today, a time characterised by the rule of slaves and a total disconnection from all that is real. So if you're at all interested in learning why Mussolini thought Evola to have magical powers, what spiritual racism means, or why a holy war might just be the best thing to ever happen to you, then listen on. Enjoy. Going into reading Evola, I was pretty ready to hate it, because I... All I'd heard was that he was really convoluted. He was friends friends before falling out with Mussolini, and I'm pretty sure he knew Hitler. And I was I was still feeling a bit burned out from you know, the Varg <laughs> the Varg <pure laughs> form of white nationalism. So I, I was expecting a expecting to have a pretty bad time. But I was very pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Pleasant, pleasantly surprised by the the man who was uh, too extreme for the Italian fascists that went to the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, the the super fascist as he claimed in court. What about you? Um, I was. <laughs> I gotta be honest, man. I was not. I was not happy going into this one. It was. Uh... <laughs> I I'm just on a real anti uh what what would you say anti-authoritarian bent <laughs> right now. Well, not, normally normally your authoritarian uh, tendencies no, are very very authoritarian, admirably strong. So it's out of character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading a lot of uh, this philosopher named Karl Popper. And mm. he's decidedly pro-liberal democracy, and I quite like. Yeah, Popper. he's an obvious. Obvious bedfellow of Julius Evola's. <laughs> um, and uh, Evola is like, you could almost take a one-to-one mapping. Like, <laughs> they're the, the polar opposite. They're every, every single thing that you could possibly like line them up about, they would disagree <laughs> on. Um, so yep. at the same time I'm reading Popper's Enemies of the Open Society... I'm reading Julius Evola's um, The uh, uh, Revolt, Revolt Against the against Modern the World. Modern world. <laughs> so it's like Evola versus Popper right now in my head. And it's been like ter- tearing my uh, my psyche in half. <laughs> like I, don't, I don't know if I want to rule with an iron fist or if I want to be like peacefully cede my power <laughs> when I'm voted out. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went in kind of not so not so crash hot. However, that being said, I did know, uh, just doing a little bit of reading about him beforehand, that he is into a lot of woo-woo stuff. Now, right now, I don't like the woo-woo stuff. That's the other thing. 
I'm really on an anti-woo-woo. For, for, for our, our dear audience, can you put a concrete <laughs> definition on woo-woo stuff? <laughs> woo-woo is anything, you know, like... <laughs> I've got friends who are going to give me shit for this. But, you know, woo-woo is chakras and the uh, mercury rising and mm. uh, anything like... <laughs> doing your sun salutations and eating yeah. the right eating paprika to balance out your body's like temperatures <laughs> or whatever okay so for basically <laughs> the elevator pitch for Evola is fascism plus woo-woo stuff and if that doesn't get you excited then <laughs> that can be the name i really of the don't episode. like don't bother reading <laughs> fascism x woo-woo <laughs> <laughs> hence why i was Pleasantly surprised by Evola. He's, I mean, I'll straight up, he's bonkers. And <laughs> I agree with almost nothing, but it is, it is really fun. It is like a trip through the fun house. It is just so strange. <laughs> a trip through the, the fascist fun house. The fascist, so, <laughs> the fascist fun house. So one of, one of the interesting things about it, though, is that you never really see fascist woo-woo these days this is a this is not a modern phenomena sometimes you see a lot of woo-woos in like uh the inner north of melbourne (laughs) or byron bay or whatever or uh probably if you go to goa or you know anywhere the bohemians rainbow serpent yeah yeah rainbow serpent (laughs) but there's not not a lot of of them walking around advocating fascism Yeah, no, nobody's going to um, Burning Man <laughs> with a SWAT sticker on their shoulder. <laughs> it's just but a Evola sun would. bro. Why are you so it's offended? So, son, well, this is an ancient and sacred symbol of the Aryan it's people. It's an ancient symbol, bro. <laughs> and so what if it was used by an authoritarian regime? <laughs> I love it when, well, I mean, when I say I love it, I don't actually <laughs> love it, but I find it amusing when people will have, like, swastika tattoos and they'll say... I'm not racist. So they're just sun wheels. It's an ancient, it's an ancient symbol of the sun and polarity. What are you getting no. so upset about? <laughs> Whatever do you mean? Response no, to when, when someone might ask whether they're a Nazi or not or a sympathizer. The, na- the Nazis had it going counterclockwise. The other way. The other way. <laughs> I mean, it was tipped on the side. It was tipped. It was tilted. You see? <laughs> yeah. So. From that point of view, it is actually a really interesting mix because it's almost like Terence McKenna had a had a horrible mm. uh, mutant love child with Benito Mussolini and yeah. created. If Terence if Terence McKenna were better read, because in Evola's <laughs> defense, Evola obviously was an extremely erudite man. I mean, my my knowledge of like ancient an, myth like an and, and history is not is not very good, so he. Might might be and probably is cherry picking a lot of this stuff, but he clearly knew a lot about about classical history, ancient myth, and things like that. Well, he knew more than me, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, so... I will defer to hierarchy as appropriate. Venerate <laughs> Julius Evola. So one so... thing about. Before we start really getting into the meat of the book, one thing that you need to know, and is a really striking feature of Evola's philosophy, is that it's actually very internally consistent. 
And especially by the standards of the things we've been reading for this podcast, it is extremely consistent. (laughs) But in order to agree with it, it rests upon a foundation of a handful of first principles of Evola's that he doesn't explain. He just he just states or posits. And if yeah. you don't if you don't agree with them, then nothing functions. Hence why I can find it at the same time quite internally consistent and disagree with probably ninety nine percent of it or all of it because Quite a number of these first principles I don't agree with, and he hasn't bothered adducing any evidence for. And rather yeah. than list them all here, when they come up in discussion, we'll point them out. We will say, this is one of his unexplained first principles. If you don't accept this, then that it's a non-starter. You're not going to agree with his philosophy. But it is quite interesting how his mixture of first principles does ultimately lead him to woo-woo fascism. <laughs> so we'll, we'll try. We'll, we'll we'll hold your hand through through this wonderful journey that we're about to have. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is the most convoluted book we've read. We should so, also say today we're just doing the first part, so it's it's split into two parts. The first part is his philosophy. The second part is about really the evolution of human civilization. Mostly about why Hyperborea and Atlantis literally existed. That's uh, <laughs> and and it's called it's, Revolt um, of it, the Modern World, right? So, yeah. so we'll he, just be covering the first of, half in this. His first half is him explaining his philosophy, essentially, and then that's in complete contrast to the modern world, obviously, um, mm-hmm. and. The second half is like prescriptions um, and analyses of of the modern world. Yeah, against that. So, so for Evola, for Evola, tradition is the most important thing. Tradition is what gives us meaning. It is what allows us to escape death. And I'm I'm not saying that metaphorically. You literally can escape death. If you are of the correct birth and you follow tradition and you are initiated, we're going to get into that. And what are some aspects of tradition that we're going to be covering? For Evola, the really big ones are divine kingship, initiation, rites, traditional law, a strong caste system, and empire. So how does he get these? Maybe I should also say, in short, what he means by traditional civilization. Yeah. Like, when he says traditional society, he doesn't mean, like, tradition as in a group of people have been doing this for a long time. When he says tradition, he means there's only one type of tradition. It's a society where there's a strong sense of hierarchy. It has a basis in the world of being. It's engaged in a process of trying to construct a higher life beyond nature and to actualize some sort of higher principle that's Mm. at its strongest when that civilization's an empire. Yeah. A lot of that will sound like mumbo-jumbo, but it will all become clear shortly. Levi, how about you start us off with um, what's the world of being 
What's the world of becoming? Because this is one of Evola's first principles. I don't agree with this, or I'm, I'm not sure why it needs to be the case. Hence why everything subsequent to this, I don't really agree with. Yeah, so hen- just before I get into that, uh, henceforth, when we refer to tradition in tradition in Evola's sense of the word, he spells it with a capital T. Oh, so yeah. it's, a, it's a proper noun. And he's specifically referring to this... Um, characterization of societies that jack just described it's not tradition as such just anything from the past as practiced by a group of people uh so presumably he could i thinking from his point of view he could analyze a society a historical society from the past if it didn't have these traits it wouldn't be a capital t traditional society in the sense that ever likes Mm. so basically we're going to be describing Tradition, capital T, Evola yeah. tradition. So, so hard, hard to convey in speech the capital T, tradition. We could just shout. <laughs> we could do, we could do a, a fascist shout, tradition. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So one of the most important parts of uh, his first principles is... Maybe the most important. Yeah, I would say it's the most important. Uh, from from this, you can hang almost all of his other perspectives. So he calls it the doctrine of the two realms. And uh, if anybody's ever read uh, Plato, it's it's very platonic in its thinking. And Plato, basically, what he was thinking is, okay, mathematics is about this realm of perfect entities. A really good example is a circle. So every time, just to make it concrete, just to make this concrete, sorry, I feel like I've been really abstract. <laughs> so to make it really concrete. Okay. So imagine you've seen, imagine every circle that you've seen over the course of your life. So you go into your uh, cupboard, you see cups and mugs, they're circle or they're circular. You go and look down the sink, you see circle is a drain, uh, put a ring on, it's a circle, right? But if you actually zoom in, or if you look at them, obviously most of them are not circles, they're actually donuts. And even if you could get a really, really thin line, say a really good pencil or really sharp pen and draw a really accurate circle, if you zoomed in far enough, you'd see that it's squiggly and it's all messed up. And even if you got a circle that's just like one hydrogen atom thin and drew it like <laughs> drew the radius with a single hydrogen atom all the way around, perfectly lined it up, it would still be bumpy in so far as uh, the, the electrons around the hydrogen atom are not like perfectly distributed. So therefore we never actually see a quote-unquote perfect circle, like a perfectly smooth circle with like that's not slightly ellipsoid or anything like that. Whereas uh, we know that a perfect circle exists because using our reasoning about per- perfect circles, we can do stuff in the physical world. Um, and the theorems that we have, the geometric, like Euclid's theorems, uh, basically tell us stuff that we can use to like interact with these uh, approximations of the these physical approximations of the perfect circle. So Plato's basic logic was, okay, as in mathematics we have these geometrical things that are perfect, we never actually see them. We only see approximations or physical forms uh, that sort of resemble them. Uh, there's there's analogous things to every there's analogous entities to every other physical object in the world. 
uh, that we see in the world of appearances. He used the example of the horse. So every horse uh, comes from the form of the horse. So every, in the same way that every circle is like uh, an image of the perfect circle or an apparent image of the perfect circle, every horse is an apparent image of the, the ideal form of the horse. And using the same idea, you can then say, well, every man is an apparent image or uh, uh, is in likeness of the perfect form of the man. And Plato then went even further to say in his political analysis, or every state, therefore, is an image of the perfect state. And the degree to which uh, the state or the person or the horse or the circle is distant from uh, or dissimilar to the perfect form, uh, Plato in like called that degradation. So mm-hmm. a circle degrades away from the perfect form or a state degrades away from its perfect form. Sorry, that was a very, very, very long-winded that way is, of like explaining That, that is so much more detail than I would have given. Sorry. So, Evla goes on to say... So Cut that. <laughs> you've, got, you've got the world of being and the world of becoming, right? And the world of being is what Levi just described. It's this platonic world of perfect forms. The world of becoming is where we are. It's contingent... It's changeable. As we'll find out, it's fundamentally feminine compared to the solar masculinity of the world of being. And everything that that apparently happens in the world of being is just a cause or almost is, is, is an effect, sorry, or almost a symbol of what's happening in the world of being. So everything that we see or sense is downstream of of this world of being. And so this is one of his first principles that the the world is divided into the world of being and the world of becoming. He makes some comparisons between the world of being and the world of becoming. Um so the world of becoming is changing, the world of being is not changing. The world of becoming is physical, so it's physical objects that we can touch and interact with. The world of being is metaphysical. Uh, the world of becoming is visible. The world of being is invisible. The world of becoming is mortal. It degrades, it degenerates, it changes. Whereas the world of being is immortal. Uh, and then tangible versus intangible. And importantly, one of the main descriptors he uses is inferior realm versus superior realm. So the world of becoming is the inferior inferior realm and the world of being is the superior realm. Yeah, and he's got a quote that sums up a lot of this, where he says, According to this doctrine, there is a physical order of things and a metaphysical one. There is a mortal nature and an immortal one. There is the superior realm of being and the inferior realm of becoming. Generally speaking, there is a visible and tangible dimension that is the support, the source, and true life of the former. So a lot of people would be familiar with this from the idea of, like, the soul. Like, that's the most... Uh, I think common people don't necessarily think in these platonic forms in other ways these days, but a lot of people still believe in the soul of some sort. And that's a platonic ideal or could be construed as a platonic ideal. Yeah. Evola believes in souls too, except it's Evola, so it gets weird. (laughs) Another first principle that is tied to this is what are the contents of the world of being? Evola has... 
very firm ideas about what the world of being entails. And if you think the world of being is different to how Evola thinks it is, then you're also you're not wrong. really going to be able to agree with much <laughs> of what he says. Like he, he basically says, I have knowledge of what the world of being is. And so you, you've, you've got to agree with me. So traditional people were more in touch with this world of being than we are now. They had a link, in his words, to above that in the modern world we've totally lost, which is why everything now is terrible. Evelis says, In traditional societies, the invisible was an element as real, if not more real, than the data provided by the physical senses. It was, it was as real to them as my voice is now as the air you breathe and things like that. Yeah, they were literally interacting with it, just like uh, you see in the movies, like in The Mummy or in Harry Potter. Like, the magic was physically interacting with the world. Yeah, he believes in magic. Yeah. Um, although we cannot, we can no longer perform virile because, masculine magic yeah, anymore. Because we've lost touch with, with the world of becoming. Sorry, so one way... <laughs> One way that you can interact <laughs> with the world of being from the world of becoming is through symbols. For Evola, symbols almost seem to be like these portals between the world of being and the world of becoming. You have certain symbols that so represent the true order of things that they carry power in and of themselves. Well, the thing is that people actually do believe in that stuff, Jack. Like, so... Uh, I went to an Anglican boarding school and the Anglicans are pretty chill. Um, But they still practice a Holy Communion, right? Where you eat the bread and Mm -hmm. drink the wine. Now, I don't believe this is the case for at least Anglicans in the modern context. However, there are still people who believe, uh, I can't remember what the doctrine is called. Maybe it's called the doctrine of transfiguration or something like that. Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, where literally eating the bread and drinking the wine uh would they would change into the ble- the the blood and the the flesh of Christ during mm. the the ceremony of uh of holy communion so these May still I think add, these things still exist when you say some people believe this those people, people are called catholics <laughs> like there are quite a few of them <laughs> there are a lot of these people <laughs> it's it's a, it's not an insignificant religion. You might have heard of it. Ah, oh, never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there, there's other. I'm sure you could find analogous things in various sects of um, all the major religions. So, it's still quite common. I mean, uh, can can I think of any other examples? Um, there are tons. I mean, the cross is held by some to have healing properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of that stuff in Italy. If you've been to Italy, mm. uh, where they still got the shrines to the um, to the saints, people go and touch the cloths, the cloth and the bones and stuff of of these um, people in the mausoleums because they think that it's got healing properties. Uh, um, but those yeah. are those are bullshit symbols that don't work. <laughs> for Evola, there are. He's got he's got real ones. He's got. The good shit that actually does provide a link to the world of being. Now, so- how do how do we know? Here's the thing, Jack. 
that we just before we get into that, we we do have to clarify. Okay, Evelyn's epistemological approach is essentially he knows. Yeah. Well, hence the talk of his first principles. Like he's got these things that he's just decided, and he won't really explain. And if you just accept them, the things that he builds on top of them are quite consistent. If you don't accept them, then it's totally arbitrary. Yeah, but he knows. This is not, this is not theory. Yeah. This is not theory or conjecture in the scientific sense. Mm. He rejects that. That is that's, the zeroth principle that Evelyn si- knows. That's a symptom. Science is a symptom of, of uh, becoming obsessed with the world of becoming and physicality. Uh, he knows the truth with a capital T. Um, and he has done so. He has arrived at this truth through uh, his well, his research, but presumably direct symbolic interaction with the mm. superior realm. Anyways, <laughs> that's anyway. a short tangent. How about how about we start off with polarity? This is a, a symbol that is very very important to Evelyn. And now the woo woo fucking begins, mate. You, oh, yeah. goddamn, the, and, and polarity's polarity's good because it's woo plus fascism because the most potent symbol of polarity or one of the most for Eveler is the swastika. Okay, all right. Well, okay. So, listen. So, for episode, when we say polarity, what he really means is the symbol of an unmoving center around which rotates something. So this this center represents you of anything? the world the world of <laughs> yes the center represents the unmoving world of being the masculine principle the solar principle around which rotates changeability it rotates something of a feminine material nature the world of being if you can imagine a, a some symbol a four armed <laughs> symbol. With an unmoving center, some right angles, and yeah, mm. and a bit. Look, what's that? You got the swastika. <laughs> it's got a center. It's a wheel. The center's not moving. You've got the forearms rotating around it. Yeah, this is this is a potent symbol for Evola that represents the true order of the cosmos. So uh, analogously, the ziggurat, as in the Aztecs. So. Yeah. Something that you'll notice about Evola, he he doesn't necessarily like all foreign cultures, but he does, well, from his perspective as an, as an Italian, obviously, foreign cultures, but he does like the bloodthirsty ones with strong caste systems and lots of ritual sacrifice. <laughs> so he yeah, likes well, the by, by definition, <laughs> he thinks the good cultures are good. Is what you're trying to say, <laughs> or was it? No, I don't it's think you're talking about true. the Mayans. Which is, I'm sure, I, I'm sure if he was alive in 2012 or whatever the thing was when that was happening, he would have totally gone around. Oh, he would have been all over that. He would have loved. He it. really but likes. He doesn't numerology. mention. He doesn't mention the Mayans. Did you know that fucking Terence McKenna was all about that numerology stuff, and he was actually on board with the 2012 stuff. He predict. He was one of the people. He was one of the progenitors of this of the 2012 thing, McKenna. I found out afterwards. So McKenna and Evola would have gone along. <laughs> <laughs> McKenna would have been like, yeah, look, like- I've been studying up on the I Ching. And Evola's like, oh, well, I've been studying the Aztec cosmology. <laughs> We've both come to the conclusion that 2012, <laughs> there's going to be an apocalypse. And <laughs> there's just... Uh, Evola's point of view is probably like, yeah, that's probably a good thing. And McKenna's like, let's take more acid. 
Yeah. Anyway, what you were saying about ziggurats. <laughs> oh, yeah, ziggurats. Look, okay, look look at them. Look at the way they're built. They're tall. They're, there's something at the center. It's, it's unmoving. And in the middle, where does the If people don't know what the they look go? like, they're those step pyramids that, say, you find, like the Assyrian or Babylonian ones, the Aztecs had these step pyramids. Yeah, this is a step pyramid. Yeah. Uh, generally covered in uh, the remains of humans. Who have had their hearts cut out may or may not be drenched in blood. <laughs> and, and he also parable. has like he also says that I oftentimes polarity is is symbolized as an island, so a an un, unmoving center surrounded by changeable water. He also talks about the the idea of a wheel. So you've got the center of the wheel that is unmoving or just assume it's unmoving, you know, in a car it moves, but and you, you've got the outer spokes rotating well, around. It depends it. what you mean by move, right? Yeah. In a <laughs> in a perfect world of being, the center would not be in motion. Whereas in our in our fallen material order, it actually does move. In the apparent world of becoming, it it's approximating it, where it looks yeah. as though it's not moving if you stand back and sort of squint. Yeah. So and obviously, what's a what's a common symbol here? Well, we've got things like the Dharmic wheel in Buddhism. I I'm, I'm I assume Evola probably read some Buddhist stuff. He certainly like <laughs> maybe oh, the, he quotes, maybe he the, quotes it a lot. He quotes the Book know, of the Dead. I don't know. Yeah, I guess the Tibetan Book bu- bu- Book of the Dead is pretty Buddhist. But he if you if you notice even with the Buddhist stuff he likes he likes the really esoteric esoteric stuff. Now yeah. not all of Buddhism is like. There's even secular secular forms of Buddhism, but he likes the real the real shit, <laughs> the esoteric yeah. mountain, <laughs> the the mountain Buddhism in the you know because like Buddhism basically smashed together in in Tibet, which was like this ancient uh, kind of esoteric spirit had this sort of spiritual spiritual system that was totally different from what was going on in uh northern india at the time and when they hit they the people just sort of smashed smashed the ideas together it was like why don't we take the meditation and fuse it with all of the all of the crazy symbology <laughs> don't you mean the chinese communist party which has always been in tibet which has always been china <laughs> decided that this was going to be the case Hun, 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 hun. Yes, I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry. That's, that's what Levi meant. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive we me. apologize I for misspoke. any offense caused by Levi saying the T word rather than China. China, China, province. Tibet is a province of China. <laughs> what's another? What's another good symbol? And by and the way, when when these symbols come up, we'll we'll point it out because so the symbol of polarity for a. A divine ruler is very important. So we'll 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 mention when these symbols come up. Another one that he he brings up a lot is solar versus lunar. Again, he just says it. If you don't think that this is like th- th- this is a symbol that directly maps onto the world, then you're going to have a hard time believing Evola's entire description of existence. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quote to start off our discussion of solar and lunar symbols. He says, The ancients had a sense of a dark netherworld, populated by obscure and ambiguous forces of every kind, the demonic soul of nature, which is the essential substratum of all nature's forms and energies. 
that was opposed to the super-rational and sidereal brightness of a higher region. So, the earth, the world of being, he calls it telluric, he calls it chthonic, he calls it feminine. It's this changeable substance that is, that is contingent. That's opposed to solar symbols, so solar, elevated, higher, related to fire, masculinity. They, they refer to the world of being and are unchanging things. The and in Evola's being Ra, Egyptian yeah. god Ra. And for Evola, those things are, they're just better. It's hierarchical and the masculine solar symbols or solar things are just superior to changeable feminine becoming of the earth, of nature, demonic they're they're worse. They're not as they're yeah. not as good. They're not as real. So, so just think about it this way, right, listeners? Okay, what what happens in the night? Bad things happen in the night. Orgies, getting mugged, uh, unsanctimonious forms of ritual sacrifice that Evola doesn't like. All these things happen in the night. The woods at night, scary. Uh, what happens if you're running around on a full moon? Uh, there'll be werewolves and women will be bleeding. Right, so <laughs> obviously the night time, bad time, which also, as I just mentioned, women, as we all know, <laughs> synchronize <laughs> with with the moon. Also, I hear I don't know if this is true. I'm sure it's complete pseudoscience, but <laughs> let's just take it as a given, right? So obviously, women are are in sync with the lunar cycle. My girlfriend certainly seems to think so. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, therefore, women women are direct expressions of this changeable nature. Women are fundamentally changeable because you look Whereas, at it, you look at the sun. The sun doesn't change shape, does it? The no. moon does. Have and you ever seen about, a half or a crescent sun? Think about how powerful the sun is. It's so powerful. Our most powerful weapons are literally based on the sun. It's pretty masculine. Just complete obliteration that is how powerful the sun is so when you think of the sun what do you think of ra giant eagle badass eagle babylonian king sun god right uh what else is good about the sun sun sunbathing <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna take a book a leaf a leaf out of varg's argumentation what what do we see that's good about the sun sunbathing <laughs> the beach <laughs> what's bad about the moon fucking cold it's dark uh you can see all the pots and the, the holes and the pots and stuff in it. So clearly, clearly <laughs> the moon I think sucks. for Evola, though, the, the main thing is that one changes and so represents the world of, be- of becoming and one doesn't and so represents the world of being. And, like, that's it. Yep. And one of, them is, one of them is masculine. The good one's masculine, the bad one's feminine. Sorry, I, I was selling First too hard on that one. If- <laughs> What else? Oh, yeah, and then he's got the, uh, the, the the symbol of the bridge or of the centre. And um, this is mostly used to describe the connection between worlds, so between the world of becoming and the world of being. And this is a position that a divine ruler will take, the centre, yeah. the, or that a divine empire will take. So, say, the Chinese Middle Kingdom is a is another example of of this bridge function or being the middle 
Yeah. So those are some symbols. How about we get into rights? Let's 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 we've we've hinted at the woo woo stuff. We've got rights. Let's dive headfirst so, into it. So obviously, okay. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but my <laughs> my feeling and correct, feel free to correct me, Jack, is that okay? Humans can embody. Humans can physically enact through rituals, symbols, and, and symbolism, and therefore directly commune or communicate with or interact with uh, the world of being, the higher realm, if, if we're doing the right ritual and if we're doing the ritual right. That's, that's my understanding going in. Yeah. So basically a right or a ritual, they're, they're ways to not only to get into contact with the world of being, but to directly influence it in yeah. almost a, a mechanical way yeah. and therefore <laughs> yeah. affect changes here in the world of becoming. Or rather, you know, everything that happens in the world of becoming is an effect of what happens in the world of being. So you change the world of being, things yeah. are going to change here. So the world and, of and becoming is secondary, literally secondary in terms of the mm, causal yeah, it's, chain. It's downstream. Reality. It's downstream, literally downstream. And so there are, in antiquity, there are two types of, of worldviews. There's the Uranian and the solar view and the Telluric and the lunar. So we, the, the symbols are already coming in. And he says, a civilization's degree of faithfulness to tradition is determined by the degree of the predominance of cults and rituals of the first type over those of the second type. So the, the more traditional, capital T traditional your society is, the more rituals, the more, the more solar rituals they perform. When I, when I say solar rituals, I don't mean like rituals to the sun. I mean solar in the symbolic sense. Yeah. Relating to the world of, of so, being. So that's solar and telluric. Correct? Or yeah. did I get that? Yeah. So Yeah. Or telluric, like you, you can just think of telluric as you know, of the earth, of nature in in um Evola's telling. He al- almost he often qualifies it with feminine as well. And what exactly did he mean by uranium? Uranus <laughs> was the ancient Greek personification of the sky, I think. And because the sky is up high and above us, that means it's good. And so Uranian things are elevated and good, at least in Evola world. That's that's my interpretation, at least. The so so can so can we clarify why it's good to be Uranian and solar versus Telluric and lunar, or can we sort of unpack that a little bit? So Uranian being like Kronos. And solar being mm-hmm. like the sun, so the Titan. So the the Titans mm-hmm. obviously come powerful beings lived a long time ago, and the sun versus t- Telluric or Gaia, you know, like the mother goddess, mm-hmm. and Luna. So that's the that's the sort of distinction he's making. I think the the main one of the main things is that worshiping Luna or Chthonic or earthly things is contingent. You're worshipping changeable things rather than solarity or unchanging things in the world of being, which direct your soul upwards. 
and through the performance of rights, allow at least some people to escape what he calls the second death. It allows so, someone to live forever. And we can so probably what we mean by contingent is, is like the things and the entities in the world of being don't depend on anything else to exist. They just exist. Whereas the things in the world of becoming a contingent, that's what Jack means when he's using that word. They are, they are, they depend on other things, especially they, they depend on the world of of being. If I, if I'm not mistaken, (laughs) I very much could be mistaken. (laughs) Yeah. And I think if we go through rights, and when I say rights, I mean R-I-T-E-S, like the good rights, not the bad rights that people demand in, in the modern world. If we, if we explain <laughs> rights, I think some of this will become more clear. So the, the ability to perform rights for traditional people was really important, and it was one of the determining factors of where you would be in the social hierarchy in the caste system. Because performing rights was for the upper castes. They were the ones who linked, linked society to the world of being. And so what is a right in Evela's telling? They were these ways to connect to the world of being through prescribed and very specific actions. And they must be performed properly. They're not, they're not a, an abstract symbolic act. They are intervention in the world of being. And if, yeah, if you do them You badly, can almost think of them as like really a technology. Consequences. <clears throat> they're a technology yeah. for interacting with, with the world of becoming. I mean, the world of being. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. They, um, he says, they were not the effusion of feelings, but a supernaturally efficacious weapon provided that not a single technique was changed in the course of the rite. So what happens is you perform the rite and it involves contact with a non-human entity and you harness their power or you dominate this entity in the world of being and make them either empower them to do something or make them do something. Or presumably and make requests or anything like that. <clears throat> it can be making requests, but he also talks about how sometimes it is a domination that, yeah. <laughs> say, a divine, a divine king regarded himself as above the gods because when he performed a rite and interacted with the world of being, he was commanding these non-human entities to do what he wanted. He wasn't yeah. subordinate to them. Fucking big dick energy right there. Big dick energy, yeah. <laughs> so in a in a modern, just to draw some, some <laughs> for all all the <laughs> listeners out there who don't partake in um, esoteric rituals, Uranian and solar rites, you might think of okay. Let's let's draw some modern parallels. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <clears throat> you know yeah. all the the pentagrams and the candles. One of everyone's and... favorites. <laughs> big fan of Buffy. Uh, and reading out, re- reading out uh, some weird language of the witches, she had to do that perfectly in order to be able to commune or to, to be able to cast the spells. Uh, the logic of why she could cast the spells, at least in Evelyn's mind, 
is that she's literally interacting with something, um, some sort of being. So other f- other modern forms that I know, there's literally people who call themselves witches and they might be referring to the religion Wicca. I don't know. I think that's what they're referring to in the modern sense. Um, and they literally do do rituals where they, they think they're casting spells or whatever. Other people, there's people who refer to themselves as druids in it's still in modern in modern times. Um and then of course there's there's like various uh indigenous indigenous cultures, uh at least <laughs> in the Australian sense, where people actually are doing things like it's almost like voodoo. Like you you do certain things, say get somebody's hair, and then you can perform a ritual in order to like uh, like poison that person, but poison not physically poison, but like spiritually poison that person, and that will literally um, like pinning pinning pin, pinning a doll. So these are all rites and rituals that people are performing. Basically, Evelyn's outlining a logic here of like why those things work, and he's also outlining a filtering mechanism through which you can think okay which which rituals are bullshit and which rituals are true because just because all these as we were saying before there's lowercase t traditional and there's uppercase t traditional and in 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 evola's view say for example the the buffy stuff or the the voodoo poking people um or the like taking people's hair and casting poison spell on people like that's a bunch of bullshit because it's not related to the caste system it's not related to king right so it's only these rituals that go through this very particular form that Evel is talking about that actually work yeah and it's i mean i have to stress that he he views it as literally true that you you perform these rites and you're affecting the world of being and it's really mechanistic. Very mechanistic. And it's this is where one of his criticisms of morality comes up. Because at the, today, at many religions, in order for you to be good within the context of that religion, you need to behave according to a set of moral precepts. Yeah. Whereas for Evola, with these rites, you have to perform these rites regularly at the right times in the right places. You have to perform them completely correctly and you need to be the right type of person. You need to have been born into it. You need to have been initiated into it. And virtue resides within the right itself. It doesn't really matter the moral work, like what the person performing the right does apart from the ritual. So long as they perform the ritual correctly, then then it's okay. It's, it's almost like a surgeon. Like your surgeon yeah. might yeah, yeah. be an asshole, but if they perform, if they carry out the steps of the surgery correctly, then it works. It's not like your body says, oh, but you're not a virtuous person, so I'm not going to function. It's no. If they do it correctly, if they do the right correctly, they get the, they get the benefit, and that is virtue. But e- even going further than that, wouldn't, would, would it be going too far to say that if I am a surgeon and I do the surgery correctly, whether I'm doing that surgery to help you by doing a trans- heart transplant or like with some, like I'm actually doing it to hurt you in some way, 
the fact that I've done it properly makes it virtuous, whether or not mine. Yeah. Does that make sense? So the virtue is in acting it out. Yeah. But we should distinguish between, say, rites and magic. So for Evola, you perform rites to... So there, there are a few... Hmm. There, there, are, there are different reasons why you would perform a rite. But for Evola, rites tend to be these things that you perform regularly to maintain connection to the world of being, either on behalf of an entire empire or a people, as the regent king might do, on behalf of their their line or their stock, as an aristocrat might do, or on behalf of their household, as the head of a household, the mm. male head of a household, I should add, might do. Well, female head of a household, just an oxymoron, Jack. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and also women can't perform these sorts of things anyway. So- as, as we know, women can't perform rights to connect to the world of being, as is... As is you know, Abundantly in evidence in Australia. It's just a... It's just true. It's just Capital true. T. It's capital T true. <laughs> yeah, just... So, what what rights are for? It, it's to maintain this uninterrupted link to the world of being and also to nourish whatever non-human being you are getting into contact with when you perform the right. It's a symbiotic relationship. These non-human entities are nourished by rights. So mm. they, they're controlled and they provide a, provide a benefit to those <laughs> in the world of becoming. But at the same time, they are, they are nourished by the right. So it's symbiotic. Yeah. Whereas what you were saying before about whether it's, this is used to hurt or to help someone, I think that's more... This is where you distinguish, say, between these rites that you perform regularly and magic. Yeah. So uh, So, magic exists. Magic definitely exists. But they're not, they're not exactly the same thing. So Mm. here's one, here's one of the things. Okay. Here's a great example of, of the num num. Give me, give me that delicious rites. You human of the world of becoming (laughs) is, uh, is, uh, I can never remember how to pronounce the goddamn guy's name, but the crazy, the crazy ziggurat king of the Mayans, I think it was the Mayans or the Aztecs, who um, uh, who used to take mushroom soup. <laughs> I'm sure Mechanical would have loved him, but he used to take mushroom soup and get tripped out and uh, apparently commune <laughs> with, with, he'd take Terence level doses of magic mushrooms commune with the war god and the and the war god would say you've got to go and sacrifice 50,000 people to to me or whatever (laughs) (laughs) and so he's literally in that case literally being fed and nourished by the um untold masses of human carcasses at the bottom of the ziggurat is that a good example, Jack? <laughs> do you that's, think Evola would like that's that? An example, that's an example of a sacrificial ritual. <laughs> One other thing with rituals that it's important to note is not everyone can perform a ritual. You have to... There, there are two elements that need to be fulfilled. Mm. You, need, you need to be of the correct stock... So there's something transmitted um, 
from father to son. Yeah. That that is sort of it, it is necessary but not sufficient for being able to communicate with the world of being. For that to be manifested, you then need to be initiated, which is another ritual. And so if you are an initiated highborn man, then you can perform these rituals. If someone else tries to do it, that is extremely dangerous. It invites chaos in, as opposed to this solar order. So the classic example would be the Brahmin, the Brahmin class in India. So mm-hmm. small class of people, father, son, I think, uh, in order to join the, the caste or to be a part of the caste. But even if you are the son of a Brahmin, in order to become a Brahmin yourself, you have to go through the initiatory rites. Yeah. And in we'll, we'll definitely get into initiations shortly and caste shortly. Caste is a big one for Evola. But it's extremely important that you're initiated. If you're not initiated, then you're not actually high caste in in the sense of being able to perform these rituals. Mm-hmm. You mentioned sacrifices. Evola specifically mentions sacrifice as an example of a really important rite. And he, so, he sort of goes through how it affects the world of being. So he says that a sacrifice effectively corresponds... Well, not effectively. It does. I'm, <laughs> I'm hedging too much. It literally does. It corresponds okay, to Evelyn an action not that generates a god or a hero. Evola doesn't hedge at all, guys. When when no. he says this stuff, he means it very literally. Yeah, and look, I consider that somewhat to his credit. It's not like, say, Terence McKenna, who just hedges everything, saying, oh, maybe this is the case, but then behaves as if what he's saying is definitely the case. Evola is honest enough to tell you that he is 100% correct <laughs> and he has no doubts about it. So... The sacrifice, it corresponds to an action that generates a god or a hero or renews their power. And reproducing this act, it reproduces the action that generated the god or the hero or renewed their power. It's the symbol of the ritual sacrifice literally creates the conditions, the same conditions that created the god or hero or renewed their power. So he he gives examples of these times that are symbolised by ritual sacrifice. So the universe creating a conflict between gods and heroes and chaos. So that is solar order represented by the gods and heroes in conflict with feminine, earthly chaos. And the universe does this so that it can overcome itself when the gods and heroes overcome chaos. And so when you perform a ritual sacrifice, you are symbolizing that action of self-overcoming and you reinforce solar order over lunar feminine chaos i wonder what evla would think of uh modern day self-help stuff 
you know, because a, a, a lot of modern self-help stuff, I mean, whether you look at Jordan Peterson or some of the other stuff that gets peddled around, it's like overcome, overcoming yourself. <laughs> <laughs> be your own hero in your own story right what a bunch of bullshit <laughs> what we need no, what, what they, we what need they, they're just they're touching on but they haven't grasped the fact that what should be happening instead of you trying to overcome yourself you should dedicate yourself fully to a divine king <laughs> or a high caste member of society a real patrician <laughs> who will perform ritual sacrifices to commune with the world of being and renew the power of solar uranian energies by literally reproducing the universal conditions in which the universe overcame itself. That's yeah. what they need. I, to you know say, what? I reckon can't. people would fucking buy this stuff, Jack. I, I actually think we could take Evla, re, <laughs> repackage it into some self-help shit and people would mm. actually buy it. <laughs> How much fascism would we leave? I reckon for the mass market. (laughs) In 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 trying to make a quick buck by being self help gurus, we accidentally spur the resurgence. (laughs) Resurgence of fascism. It's just a woo woo fascism resurgence in the West, uh, brought on by a wave of self help. (laughs) Tony Robbins becomes our god king. (laughs) (laughs) How about so? Well, no, we could. We could dedicate rights to Evola as the the founder of the new stock. The Evolian so, school of... Uh, yeah. So it, the new well, I mean, this school. is an example, actually, of how literally he takes this. So you, what, what people did, or traditional people did, highborn ones who could perform these rites, they would dedicate rights to, say, the divine founder of their family. So... So you were part of a patrician family. You trace your lineage back to some Kronos. divine founder who was a, a god or Hercules, blessed or something like that. Yeah, and that divine founder exists in the world of being. They're they're there all the time, and that's you what we mean. Literally, right. they've transcended s- death by becoming a yeah. hero. They are now in the world yeah. of being, so yeah. they still and exist. They, they don't die, and when you perform a rite to them. It strengthens them and they help your they help their aristocratic lineage. And in the same way, I reckon we could probably start offering sacrifices to Evola. To Evola. Like, I mean, clearly like he transcended. Kill it or something for him. We just need to work out well, given that neither of us have been initiated, and I'm uh, pretty sure neither of us are from high caste patrician families. We actually, we probably shouldn't have anything to do with this. If someone but, listening is from but a I high think we could patrician family and knows how to perform sacrificial rites, do one to Evola and we will be your peons. We'll be your peons. We are trying to manifest this in the world. Please, re- this is an if, open invitation. If there's any Clintons listening, if there's any Clintons or Bidens, stop, stop raping kids and and taking ice. <laughs> put that shit down and get back to ritual sacrifices and resurrect your uh, your we ancient We can ritually hero. sacrifice the kids. <laughs> In order to really understand Evola's ideas about rites and rituals, that this will provide even more context, is we need to get onto his ideas of race, which. To his credit, he is definitely racist, but it's a different type of racism to what I'm used to. This is, this a, is not a spiritual racism. racism. 
Yes. This is an even better type of racism. This is, <laughs> this is an interesting racism. This is a so higher type. Of course, of course, there is an essential hierarchy of people. And it's somewhat heritable. It appears heritable in the world of becoming. But that is really because it's... what Everything we see is a consequence or a shadow of what is happening in the world of being. So... One's race determines their link to the world of being from the world of becoming. And the most superior races, which for him are the pure stocks from Hyperborea and from Atlantis. Atlanteans are a bit worse. And in part two, we'll go into Hyperborea and Atlantis a bit more. Both real places. Uh, this is not figurative. <laughs> uh, they exist invisibly now, which is why you can't see them. And they both, they're the most superior because they actually can maintain this link to the world of being without any initiation, without any initiatory rights. They can just do it. Now, in inferior ages, that the, the stock has been diluted and degraded, you need initiatory rights to access the world of being, if possible at all. There are many, many people who are racially, in a spiritual sense, inferior to the point where no matter you know how many initiation rites they undergo they can never commune with the world of being they can never perform a rite uh it's it's just not spiritually possible <laughs> and the <laughs> why are you laughing jack hmm? <laughs> because i agree with the concept of spiritual <laughs> racism to such an extent that i can't help but laugh at it <laughs> The, the reason why, say, smooth brain, midwit, modern materialist racists might think that, and he included, say, Adolf Hitler among these people, might think that race is just totally heritable in the blood is because they're not seeing the world of being. So... Say with castes, you shouldn't marry outside castes or reproduce outside castes, caste lines. Because, not because you will, there's something in the blood that will be mixed, leading to a degraded race. It's more, there's something in the blood that represents something in the world of being that you don't want being mixed. So it, it leads to a very similar place to what he would call materialist racism. Now, to but be fair to Evola, it's coming he from was, a different place. He was living in the times before we discovered uh, the double helix, and therefore it's forgivable that he didn't know that, in fact, just like the SWAT sticker, the double helix DNA is <laughs> it's itself a polar symbol, a polar symbol of... <laughs> <laughs> rotating around a center point and in so far you see, as different, you see why he's right. <laughs> different configurations of of the dna molecules can more truly represent the solar symbol <laughs> you can have literally in the symbol symbolism of inside of your dna you can <laughs> literally have a connection to the world of being and mm. if that is diluted through through caste uh, degradation, mm. mixing of caste, 
You might, I might say, say Jack. You clearly great cast character. Not, you know, as we discussed before, blue, blue head, <laughs> blonde haired, blue eyes. Blue head. <laughs> uh, blue but still, still like. pretty good. Still pretty good. <laughs> uh, but the reason why you are the way you are is not on a physical level, but on a spiritual level is because somewhere back in your ancestry, somebody who had a worse symbol in their DNA mixed with somebody who had a better symbol in their DNA. And you've now lost your connection to that cast. And an important thing is too, is initiation. So this is where, this is one of the biggest departures he has from what, from materialist racism is that, We'll talk about initiatory rites in a second because they're really important. But an initiatory rite ontologically transforms you and connects you to the world bit. of being. And this is this is heritable, you know, in the sense that your children it, it it's heritable in a spiritual sense. So your children will have this ability too. Um, that like this Harry superiority Potter. awakened in you by an initiatory rite will be heritable by your children. And he says, having entered into the bloodstream as some sort of transcendent legacy, this quality would become the characteristic feature of a race that is activated in individuals by the rite of initiation. So you can change race in the sense that if you are already... Like, you, you have to be superior enough to be able to undergo an initiatory rite. Yeah. But so long as you are, you can actually be, you can ascend in race if you're initiated. Yeah, this is like uh, the Jedi. The midichlorians. The midichlorians. Evola <laughs> is pro-midichlorian. It is interesting. At several points in this book, he does denounce, say, the racism of the the early and mid-20th century, where he says, Blood and ethnic purity are factors that are valued in traditional civilizations too. Their value, however, never justifies the employment, in the case of human beings, of the same criteria employed to ascertain the presence of pure blood in a dog or in a horse, as is the case in some modern racist ideologies. Because he views those as secondary effects. He talks about how if you just breed people like you would breed horses, then... At very best, you will get a race of beautiful beings only fit for work. You're never going to get the spiritual dimension. So you will your race will degrade, but maybe more slowly than if people were allowed to mix without any constraints. But you're still you're still not getting the spiritual aspect. He um oh here we go. Well, this is the quote. He says. If men are treated like rabbits or stallions, their unions being carefully and rationally planned, let no one be fooled. What they will generate will either be a civilization of very beautiful animals destined to work, or, if the individualistic and utilitarian element predominates, a stronger law will lead the races towards the path of regression or extinction, according to the same inexorability of the law of entropy and the degradation of energy. So he, uh... Evola's racism is... Interesting. It's not like Varg where he just says white people are great and blonde hair and blue eyes are greater. He's got a spirituality. He's a spiritual racist. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the most important bit about race, or the 
the bit that makes race most important really seems to be that it allows one to be initiated. That's probably what we should talk about now because initiation rights are really important for Evola. It's super important. As we said before, the symbol of the bridge, the connection, so obviously got a bridge over a river, say, you've connected one side to the other side insofar as we're on one side of a gaping chasm between us and the world of being, we need some bridge, right? So in order to be able to connect with that. Uh, initiation is one of those bridges. I believe that through the initiation, I might be wrong here, Jack, uh, you can actually become a hero and heroes are demigods. So that is the way in which you can transcend death is through heroic initiation. Uh, yeah, exactly. He, he, he does say that this is how you become a hero. It's like, so imagine if things are going well. So you're, you're born into the right stock. He always, he always calls it a stock. You're of the right stock. You've got this innate character characteristic that can be evoked by initiation to be connected to the world of being initiation is a type of right so remember something that you need to perform exactly correctly it's like a it's a it's a mechanistic process and it takes someone of superior stock and ontologically transforms them in Evola's words. So ontologically, so of their being, their fundamental nature is transformed into someone with a connection to the world of being. And that allows them to perform rights themselves. So you can't you're not able to perform rights if you can't connect to the world of being, obviously. It's just facts and logic that you can't do that. And an, an initiatory right allows you to do that. It has other benefits. It allows you also to never die. Um, because <laughs> things in the world of being don't die. Yeah, and he's got this he's got this thing about um the demonic totem and people's people's nature. So people's fundamental nature is demonic. And when we say demonic, it's not like in the Christian sense. It doesn't carry this this connotation of evil or anything like that. It just it just means like common of the earth, telluric, chthonic, feminine, changeable, contingent, all of these words that he uses together. And the demon or the double is the, it's sort of what is behind someone's personality and person. And from this arise organic processes say of life, someone's destiny, their relationship with others. And this is all coming from a demonic totem, which is sort of this wellspring of a stock. Everyone of that stock is this expression or this face of that demonic totem. When you die and you haven't been initiated, the, the part of you that you know, calls itself I at the moment eventually dissolves back into the totem. It becomes a shade, which then over time dissolves into that totem and is then re-expressed at a different time when you are initiated your nature is fundamentally transformed and when you die you don't have this second death which is 
dissolving back into the demonic totem of your stock. Instead, you exist forever in the world of being. As And if you are initiated, you exist as a hero. A god is someone who can do this without initiation. Um, you only start having heroes when there has been some degradation at work because you need initiation rather than having this intuitive contact with the world of being. But, yeah, you, you live forever. Not figuratively. You literally live forever. It's like alchemical. So, I did Evel like alchemy? I feel like he probably would have. Yeah, he, he, he um, liked alchemy. So, like he wrote a book about it. Yeah, right. So, alchemy, the alchemists were always on the lookout for the, you know, philosopher's stone. Or whatever to turn anything into gold, right? But it it was not merely the physical transformation of stuff into gold. It was also a spiritual analogy, and this is essentially what what like this is an alchemical uh, bit of re- reasoning, which is you 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 perform this right, this ritual, sorry, this initiation right, and you undergo an alchemical transformation on a spiritual level from something that is contingent and degrading and is going to die because you're in the world of becoming and you transcend that into at least some part of you is now uh, a, a permanent uh, a permanent being in the world of yeah in the world of being yeah and this ties into his concept of um virility he talks about things being virile all the time and when he says this, you can't be confused. He, he makes a distinction between what he calls virile man and phallic man. <laughs> and, <laughs> and phallic man is what people might think of today when you say virile. Like um, Bronze Age. Bronze Age. Yeah, like Bronze Age pervert. Huge, That's phallic man. Big swing. And phallic dick, man. Full of testosterone, yeah. bench but 500 not kilos. But not yeah. not virile, phallic. Yeah, that's not true virility. True virility, like a man becomes virile or becomes a man because he doesn't really consider you a man unless you are initiated. You are virile when you have divine ancestry, have undergone initiation to evoke that ancestry and awaken your legacy, and then you exercise this power. That is virility. I don't know hey, any modern examples of this. <laughs> yes. Do you want to discuss men and women? I'm always up for that. <laughs> I feel like almost every episode we we, we <laughs> made to discuss the truth of men and women. <laughs> so we've we've hinted we've hinted at it, but let's let's really get into it because this is a big topic for Evola, and th- this is where a lot of his wackiness comes out. I mean. It's, it's the difference between working and answers. Like, his answers as to the correct relationship between men and women are, in practice, deeply conservative. But the way he derives this is quite well, as, as Or at Jack least said at the I end haven't of, come across it. As Jack said at the end of the Terence episode with regards to drug reform proposals, Evola has, like on a maths exam, (laughs) 
come to the correct conclusions. (laughs) (laughs) But his working isn't correct. (laughs) Yeah. Or questionable. Why harems are good. Why the practice of sati, where a devoted wife will throw herself on her husband's funeral pyre and burn to death. Why those are really good things. So... Actually, he cites those as two examples of a good relationship so between men and let's, women. So let's just think. Okay, what's the what are the classic examples of masculine, feminine? You've already sort of alluded to one: solar, lunar. That's often one. Yin and yang. Uh, mm-hmm. In the Vedic stuff, it's uh, Shakti and. Uh, Shukra, chakra, if I remember correctly. Um, so there's this kind of ever-present polarity of uh, or, or, or contrasting of the masculine principle and the, the feminine principle. And traditional societies are actually uh, able to have these two principles, I suppose, in balance properly or their relationship to one another is is healthy and right. Yeah. Are you on board so far, Jack? Yeah, there's a correct relationship between... Yeah, so the, the masculine energy, as, as, you know, as we've discussed in passing, is immovable, unchanging, solar, supernatural. The feminine is dark, changeable, natural, contingent. Fleeting. And needy fleeting needy flighty <laughs> flaky not replying to me it's all of the rude stereotypes about men and women but doesn't <laughs> never text me way. back <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you've got these two f- essential forces in the world there's a correct relationship between them that stabilizes a traditional society so, <laughs> the feminine <laughs> principle is is flighty, easily distracted, contingent, not firm. It will naturally focus on fleeting objects in the world of becoming. Obviously, I mean, he doesn't justify this. This is a this is an obvious fact that you you simply must accept if you want to accept anything Evola says. So, it needs to find a limit to its restlessness in order for a traditional society to be stabilised. How does it do this? Well, fortunately, the world of being has provided us with men. <laughs> and and the, the, it must focus on a virile stability. So, in finding this stability... So that, remember that the, the masculine nature is unchanging. The feminine nature is fundamentally changing. So the feminine nature in focusing on this virile stability is transfigured. Whereas the masculine energy is not because it is unchanging. It's that fundamental masculine characteristic. And so what happens is the female restless form is a generating force that receives the primordial power of the male activity and form and generates based on that. 
this relationship stabilizes society. It is a polarity. It is the unchanging man at the center with the changeable woman rotating around him. So who um, is at the center? The man. The man is at the center. Top of the ziggurat, yeah. center of the wheel. Center of the swastika. The woman, period blood flowing down the ziggurat, spurting at the height of the moon's uh, fullness and spinning around the edge of the wheel like a goddamn merry-go-round. Yeah. Fleety, ignoring text <laughs> messages. Yeah, yeah, ex- ex- exactly, exactly. So, well, I mean, part how of the reason should... why maybe maybe you're getting ignored because you're not too... you're not truly virile. Maybe I'm, you're a phallic. I'm, I'm man. too you're phallic. A virile man. Were I'm, you ever initiated? No, of course not. Did you <laughs> did you ever undergo an ontological transformation and commune with the world of being? <laughs> this this is important. I have not considered maybe if I go and track down somebody who can initiate me in the way that Evel is talking about, maybe I can have an ontological transformation and uh Hose will be getting back to me. One <laughs> <laughs> for your Twitter, for your Twitter, uh, Twitter, for your ontologically profile. transformed, <laughs> ontologically transformed virile man. I saw this um, two point five kilometers away. There's r slash Tinder. It's so funny. It's so good. Um, there's there was this one post that this one thread that blew up on Tinder r slash Tinder. And it was this guy who was posting, who was pretending to be like Neo from the Matrix. And his whole thing was uh, about being like a super nerd, like could code in six different languages and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and and uh, this post blew up. I think we should have a post like that. Except the Evola man. <laughs> Ontologically transformed. Energy. Virile, not phallic. <laughs> so how should how should men behave? This is the natural question. This is the question mm. that all young men ask themselves once they start uh, trolling on the like wrong parts of on wrong parts of the internet. <laughs> they are uh, men, obviously. I I don't even know why we, we why we needed to read Evola to get this. Obviously, men should be active, should be going out there, attaining uh, transcendence through action, (laughs) becoming a hero, (laughs) or an equally valid form of action, being ascetic and rejecting the entire entire game. But in any case, Mm. being active. The Sigma grind set. The Sigma grind set. Woman. The woman? Clearly. Clearly, passive. Yeah, should be serving. Should be rotating. Should be not merely serving. <laughs> but should be literally the rotating around. You should find yourself. Hey, women, ladies out there. Hey, this is a uh, Jack and Levi going to start tips. doing doing a traditional uh, class- classifieds classifieds or something what's uh what's like one of those dating tips shows we should do <laughs> dating tips for women all right if you want if you want yourself a nice happy relationship with a man who loves you you need to physically rotate around him <laughs> like a well, not okay. I mean, not not physically within the world of being <laughs> <laughs> 
actually, I think that Jack. I actually think that would be a really good, a good, good segment. Um, dating good tips segment. based, D- dating on the tips shit based on. <laughs> so, like you were saying, Levi, men should be fundamentally either active or contemplative in order to to get in touch with the world of being, and the masculine principle, as Evola just says, is active. The feminine is passive, and. How a woman should behave, given her innate passivity and the innate male activity, is by being the the passive mirror of what constitutes an ideal virile man. So there are two paths that the ideal woman will take. Again, both passive modes of carrying out the two two ways of being ideally virile for, for men. So for men, you know, you you can be absolutely active, um, which is heroism. That is an affirmation. You become the warrior. Whereas absolute passive heroism in the female sense is dedicated to the object of love. You become the lover. You can also be the mother. Now, note, both of these ways are descriptions of how you relate to a man. The true path of a woman, both paths are just to do with your relationship to a true virile man, either as his lover or as as his mother. So let's be 100% clear. Your value as a woman (laughs) in Evola's philosophy, which is true, your yeah. value is entirely in relationship to a man. If that man is virile and heroic and initiated. Not phallic. Virile. Not phallic. And you have an unwavering. Remember, you're fleety, flaky. You don't reply to text. But <laughs> your love doesn't have to be. Your love needs yeah, to yeah. be unshaking, unwavering to this center. The center of the spiritual realm and also the center of your life. Now, you can do that either as, obviously, a mother, which is great. It's fantastic. Very important. Or as a lover. Yeah. Let me give you a quote where he sums it up. Evola says, to, rel- to, to realize oneself in an increasingly resolute way according to these two distinct and unmistakable directions, to reduce in a woman all that is masculine and in a man everything that is feminine, and to strive to implement the archetypes of the absolute man and of the absolute woman, this was the traditional law concerning the sexes according to their different planes of existence. Note, different planes of existence. Again, not metaphorical. Men are solar and of being. Women are lunar and of becoming. <laughs> You're actually at different levels, different planes of existence. And one, a, a good way, he gives this example of a situation within which men and women can realize their true natures as in the Islamic uh, harem. So where one guy has all these women that he can have sex with just whenever. For Evola, this is, this is good because, say, in feminine, in feminine nature, they want to possess a man. 
But that that can't happen because that's controlling, not passive. So that breaks the feminine nature. And if a man acquiesces to that and says something completely cucked, like I will be monogamous, then that's feminine because that's passivity. That is a dependence on something else. You're no longer living the virile masculine principle. So a harem is perfect. And now because remember, it means what yeah. a wheel, one center. One center, mm. many spokes, <laughs> many spokes. Yeah. You get it? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> the the harem allows a woman to self overcome her innate jealousy and to give herself to a man totally and ask for nothing in return. It allows the guy <laughs> nothing to <laughs> literally to, to nothing. have sex with all of these women. <laughs> And not dedicate himself to any one of them. It is a spiritual traditionalist fulfillment of the creed, treat him mean, keep him keen. It's <laughs> brilliant. It's spiritually fulfilling. Spiritual pimp. Evelus is spiritual pimp. <laughs> he says, as far as the woman is concerned, there is true greatness in her when she is capable of giving without asking for anything in return. When she is like a flame feeding itself... When she loves even more as the object of her love does not commit himself, does not open himself up, and even creates some distance. And finally, when the man is not perceived by her as a mere husband or lover, but as her lord. Evola would be, hu- Evola would be huge in the PUA, the online PUA. <laughs> Mate. Uh, do you know Fit and Fresh? <laughs> no, These- is this... <laughs> Fucking my god, dude. Look, if these two dumb cunts can blow up on YouTube, these guys have some 500,000 subscribers on YouTube alone. Fit and fresh. Mm. We'll look at them sometime. One of them literally looks like a fucking gargoyle. Huge following. If we. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're dumb, dumb, dumb as doorknobs. You do realise we are two people who voluntarily read Revolt Against the Modern World and are yeah, now talking about it. I suppose I can't. There are different them. forms of idiocy. They're, I I really disapprove of Fit and Fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I disapprove of them more than I disapprove of Evola. <laughs> Partially because they're probably having more impact in the world in a weird way. But I feel like they would literally agree with everything he said, except for the statements about the metaphysical nature mm. of his justification. Fit and Fresh, hit us up for a Other than that, One day, one day we can be on Fit and Fresh. Just stare into the abyss of that man's face. <laughs> um, one thing that, my, that people might complain about, and this will also come up in the context of cast, is that it's a modern person might say, well, that's so unfair. Shouldn't you be allowed to pursue your interests based on what you as an individual want? And Evola will, Evola will set you straight. He says, no, no, no. Remember, everything in the world of becoming, so that it, you know, I, I appear to be a man, is, is a consequence of what's happening in the world of being. And there, there is no chance. There is no contingency. You in this world are a man or you are a woman. In the same sense as you are a high caste person or a low caste person, because your soul in the world of being chose your body. It is innately that way. 
if you are born a woman, it is because you deserve it. It is because you, you fundamentally, in your very essence, are passive and need to rotate <laughs> in a lunar way around the <laughs> around solar a, masculine a solar, center. Solar center, yep. <laughs> With nice, a couple of nice straight right angles. You know, you could, you mm-hmm. could make a, a SWAT sticker out of the bodies of your harem. You could. And I'm sure it would hold some significance in the world of being. And connect directly. <laughs> I think that we should do a section someday on dating advice from each, each one of them. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And in our society, because we've forgotten this, it's part of the reason why all relationships are so fucked. He, um... Evola says that a modern European woman is not interested in men anymore because she she has taken on the male egocentricity. She will only care about what a man can do to to satisfy her pleasure or her vanity. And he's got this he's got this great quote about what women are like today. Or when he wrote the book, he wrote the book in the late sixties. He looked around and he was not impressed. And this has Man, this has some powerful incel energy, <laughs> really potent <laughs> incel energy. He says, the shallow and vain woman, incapable of any elan beyond herself, utterly inadequate as far as sensuality and sinfulness are concerned, because to the modern woman, the possibilities of physical love are often not as interesting as the narcissistic cult of her body or is being seen with as many or as few clothes as possible, or is engaging in physical training, dancing, practicing sports, pursuing wealth, and so on. He's, uh, he's lucky he never lived to see OnlyFans. <laughs> he, uh, I feel like he would have gotten along with um, that fellow who, who shot up. He shot up Santa Barbara. What was that guy's name? Oh, was it Elliot Rogers or something? Elliot Rogers, yeah. I feel like Elliot Rogers, if he had been into ancient world studies, he would have written... Julius Evola, the supreme gentleman. <laughs> maybe a... maybe Ju- Elliot Rogers is a direct descendant of the lineage of Evola. <laughs> the, the aristocratic lineage <laughs> of Ev- Julius Evola. Yeah, obviously never initiated. <laughs> You were wanting to talk about sex because um, the the problems that we're experiencing in the modern world when it comes to the relationship between men and women are feeding into sex in a in a bad way. <laughs> the qualifying substance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he talks about semen a lot. I would just love it if, uh, in, if in pornos or something, whenever they did the the money shot, they referred to it as like the qualifying substance. The qualifying substance. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what sex should be for is really for men bearing the Uranian lineage, the solar lineage. To find appropriate women, <laughs> he calls them fertile ground for developing this solar lineage. Because <laughs> the, the semen of a highborn initiate contains a 
qualifying substance. So remember, the male nature is unchanging. So the male nature is really bad. Like you, you can't develop a child using the male nature. The female nature is changeable. So it is fertile ground for developing a child. So the male qualifying substance enters the feminine changeability and orders it and makes it ascend upwards. And this, this creates a child of duty, one who will be initiated and, and prolong their stock. So the, the lineage, it's, a, it's from the man. Oh, oh, totally, totally, yeah. The, the woman just is... exists to develop it. <laughs> the woman exists merely as a vessel. Sorry, I shouldn't say I shouldn't degrade women by saying merely. That is the highest calling of a woman is to be exists a passive sacredly. receptacle, a passive receptacle for the qualifying substance of a heroic virile man. <laughs> I shit you not. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I feel like our next book is going to be somewhat different. <laughs> you guys will have to stay tuned yeah. because uh, stay tuned. Evola, <laughs> Evola has very prog- has very progressive views on 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 gender relations. So mm-hmm. in that way, uh. If you're like a high caste man, you can still have a harem, including lower caste women, and your children yeah, will definitely. still be high caste because it's a it the the fact that your children are able your male children obviously are able to become initiates um, comes from you. So it's mm-hmm. not yeah it's not it's it's, it's not patrilineal. Like, it's patrilineal. It's um you don't have. We don't mess around. Evola doesn't mess around with, oh, you know, trying to figure out whatever lineage X, Y, or Z has to cross over here, that monarch, this noble family, whatever. No, none of that. It just straight down from the men. Women. Well, you're yeah, out. Na- naturally. Well, supernaturally, women, I should say. I, I think I'm pretty sure women can't even become heroes, right? They can't, they can't overcome. Can they overcome? They, can they undergo. They can overcome their nature. So. No, no, no. Can they <laughs> undergo ontological transformation and trans and overcome the second death and enter into the world they of being can. and therefore become Because you know how okay, earlier this is oh, this is a good way to illustrate <laughs> this point. You know how earlier I mentioned he really likes the I'm pretty sure it's banned now. Oh, almost definitely banned. The Hindu tradition <laughs> of Sati, where the if a man dies, his widow is supposed to throw herself on his funeral pyre and burn to death. Beside those who are the good. Evola thinks this is this is sick. Like sick in a good way. I should I qualify. Not like, like sick. awesome, good, like sick. great. As in do, awesome, do yeah. that more. More Sati. Yeah, do it do it more. Um so a woman because a woman is a receptacle, it it is it's it's this changeable thing that needs to focus on stable virility. <laughs> because because she is a receptacle. That's <laughs> <laughs> a concrete statement. Um, she gets her character or her being from the man, and her it's value the male from being in relation to the man. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, it, 
Obviously, a woman can't be initiated because she doesn't bear the Uranian lineage. However, when she truly follows either the path of the lover or the path of the mother, in the case of Sati, it's the path of the lover. In death, she takes on her husband's initiatory status or his ontological transformation. She becomes you know, as, almost as one with him. Mm. Because she follows a true one of the two true feminine paths. So women can avoid the second death. But it's through actions of utter selflessness with relation to their husband. Yeah, or their only father. insofar as they are literally going to burn themselves on the body of their dead husband. Look, no one said it was easy being ontologically transformed to avoid the second death. <laughs> Try being thermodynamically it just to be a lot transformed, for a man. Jack. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so this is all true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and before we move on from sex, I should I should add that. Part of the reason why we have such a problem with overpopulation of, of the wrong sorts in Evola's view is that we've lost this, this traditional sexuality. And with the loss of traditional sexuality, only the animal urge predominates. And because the plebeian masses are the ones in whom the animal urge is the most powerful, they're the ones who reproduce the most quickly and not, not the right type of people. <laughs> I just don't know what to say in response, in response to that I hope listeners are beginning to see why we describe this as woo-woo fascism <laughs> it's, it's, how, He derives how fascist principles from like from... fucking Buddhism and Hinduism like a select reading, a very, an extremely oh, yes, yes. select reading, select of, reading. <laughs> of, of, of the Vedic traditions, esoteric forms of Buddhism, very loose ideas of South American mm. numerology and, and astrology. classical Greece and Rome. Classical Greece and Rome. Oh, and Egypt. Yeah, so, he does like he he does like them, and Hyperborea and Atlantis, as the the two most important. It's <laughs> it's it's not easy to follow. I, if you just accept his first principles, it's actually very easy to follow because it's very consistent. It's just if you. When you read it, you just have to switch part of your brain off and say, okay, these things are just... You just have to accept these things. And once you do, everything else makes sense. Like, I caught myself when I was reading it thinking, oh, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Like, when he was talking about the caste system, I was reading it and thinking, yeah, that does follow from everything else he said. But <laughs> if, if you like, don't... In a weird way, a good reasoner... <laughs> It, from a good just, reason from fairly flawed first principles. And then very select use of supporting evidence. Yeah, yeah. 
He provides a lot of supporting evidence. We're not citing or citing. He doesn't cite it. Doesn't really cite much. It's a very, it's a very long book, and arguably you could summarize each chapter in probably a couple of pages. But a huge amount of it is him just Mm. referencing different traditions. I'm glad he didn't because I actually enjoyed reading it. It's such a weird feeling reading something and thinking like, I struggle to think of anything in this that I agree with, but I'm actually enjoying myself. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Jack. So, (laughs) what else have we got? We've already talked about the afterlife, actually. We don't need to talk about that. Regality. um... Yeah. He's got this idea of regality. Regality. when, When he talks about how a traditional society should be run, it should be ruled by a divine king. Naturally. Obviously. And this is... He describes real monarchs as... He says, real monarchs were the steadfast personification of the life beyond life. These these kings exist as a bridge between the worlds of being and becoming. He calls them people who serve the pontifical function. When I say pontifical, I don't mean like of the Pope or some other, you know, a degenerate position like that when you compare to the perfect regality of the traditional world. I mean, someone who serves as a bridge. Like, you know, more the Latin sense of the word pontifical. Yeah. And a a king embodies polarity and embodies solarity because they are this central point around which society is rotating. And... It's the king that, in performing sacred rites, establishes this line through society where if everyone else in society fulfills their roles, that includes, like, the lowest castes. If the lowest castes also perform their roles in accordance with the order of the world of being, in a sense, they participate in this society-wide rite and are directed upwards. It's almost as if, like, the the king or the pharaoh is a solar panel, like a central <laughs> solar panel, and then all the rest of society is uh, mirrors. And if they're all mm-hmm. doing their job, they're pointing and they're, like pointing and reflecting light onto the king and helping generate more regal power. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to visualize this. (laughs) Because what you were saying at the start of the episode about how a lot of Evola is quite platonic, this is, this is quite platonic too. It's uh, he even, he quotes Plato saying that quiqui sum and as an aside, you know, to each his own. Mm-hmm. That is, with the, with the principle according to which everybody should fulfill the function typical of his or her own nature. So kings are, divine kings are destined to be this way. So this is actually quite an important argument he's making. Mm-hmm. Is basically like each person is born into a caste or into a class. And that class has a particular role to fulfill. And in performing that role, you're fulfilling your divine spiritual duty. Mm -hmm. And he makes a really important point, 
which maybe Plato wouldn't agree with potentially, but maybe he would, uh, which is that if people are doing this, this isn't... Um, I mean, Mussolini would agree with him. This isn't... You don't need to force people through brute, through brute force. You don't need to coerce people through brute force. It's not... a it's it's totalitarian, <laughs> but it's not totalitarian oh, yeah. in yeah. the sense that there's uh, SS guards running around like making people do stuff. No, it it people want to fulfill their divine duty, and so people will conform to their nature. And if you are a blacksmith, you will do blacksmithing. If you are a trucker, you will do trucking. And if you are a divine king, you will do divine king rights. And initiatory rights, yeah. and it's non-coercive. People are conforming to their duties in their nature. Yeah, exactly. It's um, he sees it as a failing of say twentieth-century fascism that they had to physically coerce people to do what they yeah. wanted. He took that as a sign of illegitimacy. And again, it kind of he makes the argument back to his first principles of materialism versus sort of metaphysical immaterialism that. <clears throat> If people are fulfilling their spiritual duty, then it's it's they're sort of doing it th- by way of the fact that uh, those duties come from the world of being. Whereas if you have to mm. coerce people, that's using uh, methods from the physical materialistic world. Yeah, and these these divine rulers should come from warrior castes. He's got this thing about how, um, say, the priestly castes usurped power from the warrior caste and so from the regal castes and he saw that as like that's a step in the degradation of our society so in in real trad societies you've got your divine ruler who is at the top of the ontological hierarchical pile and you've got this caste around the king of say aristocratic warriors who initiate each other using their initiatory rights. That degrades when eventually you get you get a priestly caste who are the ones responsible for initiating others. So they, they consecrate people rather than aristocrats initiating each other. And this this damages society because eventually the priests will demand power in their own right. They will claim that they are the mediators between the world of becoming and the world of being, but they don't have have temporal power. They don't have martial power. And it leads to a splitting of, of spiritual and earthly power, which, which degrades society. Evola says, when a priestly caste or a church claims to be the exclusive holder of that sacred force that alone can empower the king to exercise his function... This marks the beginning of an involutive process. Which again, like, makes sense from his first first principles. Yeah. (laughs) In a weird weird way, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. And um, once, once you've split those two things and lose that absolute centrality, that polarity of the initiated divine regent, you get... These two concurrent processes which lead to degeneracy. One of these is you get a royalty that's merely a temporal power, 
and one that will eventually rebel against the priestly order. And this, this leads to a temporal power with no spiritual foundation. You get secularization of the state, the destruction of an authentic hierarchy. Then the, the, other, the other branch of this is you get a lunar spirituality. So the, the priestly caste come more and more to resemble a lunar spirituality because they're no longer representing the solar spirituality of, of the divine ruler. They rebel against the solar spirituality of kings and you get this civilization of the mother. It goes on and it claims a, a, a spiritual authority of the church over the regal ideal, but ultimately the church is sidelined because the church encourages the plebeian castes to reject the, the sacred king, but they stop worshipping the church as a as a true spiritual authority because the church don't, they're not able to perform true rites anymore because they're not of the regal highborn stock. And so their, their traditions and their rituals don't affect change in the world of being. And so your common man stops seeing a benefit and they stop following the church eventually. And that leads to secularization, humanism, atheism, Democracy. Women asking for rights. All the bad it's stuff. Just, it's all, all, all the bad stuff. Just whenever you think of something bad in the world, such as liberty or freedom, <laughs> just think that is a direct consequence of that is a direct consequence of the separation of church and state. Yes, yes, exactly. Church and the state should both be embodied in one polar, in one, solar individual. In one king. How about we talk about bhakti and then go on to the caste hierarchy? Because men and women's a big thing and the castes are another really big thing. But to understand the castes, we, we need to understand bhakti. So bhakti is... There, there are two methods of action. Here is another first principle. This does not go explained. It just is. You, you can be sure it's true, actually, because he doesn't even need to explain it. Um, perhaps I'm being unfair. When he doesn't explain something, maybe that should be more of an indication of its, its truth value in a positive sense. Because that makes if sense. he doesn't have to explain it, then it's, it's self-evidently it's self true. So, true. Yeah. So, self-evidently, there are two methods of action. One of them is earthly or utilitarian. And again, remember, when he says earthly, you can connect with that contingent, telluric, chthonic, feminine, all these things you don't want. <laughs> and then the, the other way you can, you can perform actions is in a heavenly way. And you know, you, you know which of those two you want to be. You want to be earthly or you want to be heavenly? I know which way I'm going. So to do something in a heavenly way, you, you perform the action for the sake of the action itself with no regard for material gain. And if it is the right kind of action, that action is transformed into a right. You said, uh, you know, that's good. And that is called bhakti. It's some, I think it's some Vedic concept that, I don't understand, like and he, he is probably misrepresenting. Oh, no. That's unfair to Julius. 
He might be misrepresenting, but I'm not sure. But so that is Bhakti. Bhakti is performing an action for the action itself and in doing so, transforming it into a rite. And he related to this is the, the concept of fetus or faithfulness, which is it's sort of applied bhakti within the context of a feudal system where in acknowledging or dedicating yourself to the person in the rank above you and doing things for them in the spirit of bhakti, you form this long chain from the ruler to the lowest peon in society and everyone's action is transfigured into a right. That, that leads us like, on to, uh, that leads us to the caste heaven on system. earth, isn't it? That is literally. Well, I mean, what, what he's describing is literally a a uh, a mechanism for creating heaven on earth. Well, that, this That's is why and, and like a caste system is great, not metaphorically, literally. Yeah. He um. Yeah. Well, he describes fetus. Which, remember, is applied bhakti. He says, This is the force that, as a magnet, establishes contacts, creates a psychic atmosphere, stabilises the social structure, and determines a system of coordination and gravitation between the individual elements and the centre. And remember the centre, the polar symbol, the divine king around which everything rotates. And that, that leads us directly to the caste system. Maybe I'll I'll open this up with a quote and then <laughs> Levi, you should tell us about why caste is actually really good. <laughs> so he says <laughs> the caste system is one of the main expressions of the traditional socio-political order, a form victorious over chaos, and the embodiment of the metaphysical ideas of stability and justice. So this is related to what we were speaking about before in that everybody essentially has a spiritual role. And so mm. bhakti, bhakti, I suppose, is a complete devotion to, to fulfilling that role. Mm. And if everybody, just imagine everybody instead of, uh, I don't know. Wanting to be an individual. Wanting to be an individual, trying out like different professions and studying different things at school or whatever you just mm, stuck trying out in podcasting your... <laughs> stayed in your lane okay if you just did that if everybody just did that and i'm i'm not sure how we would know what that spiritual role is but i suppose if we were in a society that was ruled <laughs> by a divine god king we would know so we would somehow know what our spiritual role is and we would know that performing that role was the highest calling the the thing to do and out of that the i i suppose in a way the caste system the caste system is therefore almost like a secondary it's it's the effect of people conforming to their role i don't know if i if i'm taking uh if i'm misrepresenting him except that's that's the way it comes across it's like, okay, yeah. the caste system is just the natural order of things. Mm-hmm. I think this is another one of his first principles in that, so the world of being definitely exists and the world of being is structured in a certain way. 
which a a true caste system reflects. Um, and if you don't just accept that the world of being is ordered in such a way as to directly mirror the Indian caste system, then you're out of luck with Evola. Yeah, <laughs> you so just obviously, have to agree with it. Okay, uh, well, this is something that we should briefly explain. Is is basically like what Evola's doing, and you. See, this is again why he is like woo woo god. He is he is the heroic aristocratic um, progenitor of the house of woo woo, modern woo woo. Is <laughs> is that he engages in what is called uh, perennialism which I don't know anything more than you would know about perennialism if you would just go and read the Wikipedia article. So, again, by no means an expert here. PhD in broology. Long story short, perennialism is the conjecture that if you go and look at a whole bunch of different mythologies or spiritual traditions or whatever, in finding the parallels between all of them, you can uh, deduce that they're all pointing towards like a single metaphysical reality. There's this mm-hmm. single truth. And <laughs> even though there's no way to falsify this, or even if there are counterexamples, you can just dismiss the counterexamples as being not, not true, not a tradition with a little t instead of a capital T. This is the argument. This is his his fun one of his basic argument is look at all these cultures. <laughs> They're pointing towards this this metaphysical truth. Oh, look, the Indians had a caste system, the Greeks had a caste system, the Aztecs Persians. had a caste system, the Persians had a caste system, the Egyptians had a caste system, the Assyrians had a caste system. They all had caste systems, didn't they, Jack? Therefore, well, I'm totally convinced. <laughs> you, you don't need to convince me. I'm already pointing, convinced. They're pointing towards a metaphysical caste system. There is a, there is, there is, not only is there an alternative world of being that is perfect, full of ideas and forms that are not contingent and do not degrade and exist eternally in, perf- in perfection, but that realm has a caste system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and insofar as we can form our actual, uh, uh, sorry, not actual, uh, our contingent world to that caste system, we'll have a better society. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of it seems to be based on, so say, say with, um, in the case of, so he really likes the ancient Indo-Aryan caste system. And the, the main the main distinction between the upper and lower castes is the ability to perform or the, the, the ability for ontological transformation in Evola's telling. So the upper two castes, the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, so respectively the priests and the warriors, as Evola sees it, they can perform rites, they can be initiated and be ontologically transformed, so they're, they're superior. Whereas the Vaisha and the Sudras are lower. They can't, they, they're telluric, feminine, lunar, and changeable. 
They're not as connected to the world of being in the same way as the upper castes. And so they're lower. That's just... Uh, Self-evident. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's just true. And he... Um, I think we, we got into this bit when we were just discussing men and women, how a modern cuck might think that it's unfair that you're just born into this by chance and you don't, and you just have to wear it. He says, no, you, you're not arbitrarily born into a caste. All phenomena in the world of becoming are consequences of events in the world of being. So being born into a given caste or as a man or as a woman, it's not chance. Soul exists before bodily life. It picks its own quality, meaning that the soul chooses the body. He, he says, a birth does not determine nature, but that nature determines birth, and calls this a more intimate inequality. He's not uncomfortable with the, the concept of inequality like the modern brainwashed progressive is. He, he embraces the term. It's... This caste, this spiritual caste system, it's not, it's not just you know, vanilla inequality. It's, it's more intimate inequality. It's even better. No, it's true inequality. It is, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. metaphysically justified. No, not even justified. It's just true. It's true. It, it just, it's, yeah, it's, it's true inequality. <laughs> it's not like you say the sky is, is metaphysically justified as being blue. It's simply is. is water blue. is wet the caste system is a reflection of the world of being of innate inequality <laughs> yeah so within these strictures one finds freedom because within the caste system you are born in the correct place that is where you can recognize and develop your true nature and in by behaving in accordance with your true will you are freed and you know, we said before that if you're taking part in this hierarchy, your actions are transformed into, a, into rights and you participate in this communion with the world of being. He says, In this way, even in the order of inferior activities connected to matter and to material conditions of life, as an aside, the things that lower castes do, it was possible to find the reflection of the way of being, of a purified and free action endowed with its own fetus and living soul, which freed it from the bonds of selfishness and ordinary interests. So it's, it's for everyone's benefit. Everyone's benefit. He also says, by being in their own caste, in faithfulness to their own caste and to their own nature, in obedience, not to a general morality, but to their morality or to the morality of their own caste, everyone enjoyed the same dignity and the same purity as everybody else. This was true for a sudra as well as for a king. The correct relationship between different members of the caste hierarchy stabilised traditional civilizations by stabilising the world of being. Remember, stability in the world of becoming is contingent upon stability in the world of being, and... By following these sacred rites so, and following the caste hierarchy, one was, one was effectively performing a rite that maintained stability and order within the world of becoming. And if you don't conform to your caste, that's breaking the rite. Not only are you adrift, but eventually chaos might be unleashed 
in the world of of becoming and that's bad for everyone so staying in your assigned role as a member of a cast is good for you and it's good for society it's good for everything you should just you should just do it it is within his within within the paradigm of the cast that Evela's fascism really really becomes evident and if you want a bit more information on fascism is a shameless plug for the podcast you're currently listening to we've done an episode on Mussolini on his doctrine of fascism which um it's kind of going back to the source so I recommend if if, if you if you're not quite sure what fascism is give that a listen but in in brief it's the idea that everyone should subordinate their will to this all-encompassing state within which is the system of morality within which is the system about how you behave, how you should relate to other people, and how you find meaning. Nothing exists outside of it. And Evola, in discussing caste, sounds his most fascist because he talks about how existence in this caste hierarchy within a traditional society is what gives life meaning. It's what makes actions good or bad. He, he goes on to say... There is no such thing as a nature that is good in itself and in which the inalienable rights of an individual, which are equally enjoyed by every human being, are preformed and rooted. Continuing, these forms, unless they are residues and traces of previous formative actions, do not have a spiritual value in and of themselves unless by participating in a higher order, such as when they are assumed in the state or an analogous traditional organisation, they are first consecrated as being from above. You've got this monolithic entity outside of which there isn't good or bad there is no meaning there is nothing so um this is when he's at his most fascist i think at least at least in the context of revolt against the modern world you mean at his most right at his most right yes <laughs> i think this is uh this is the part where he this is the bridge <laughs> to 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 borrow his thinking, uh, the bridge between woo-woo and totalitarian fascist state fascism <laughs> is 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 the caste system. You see, yeah. I think people in the modern world who are into the woo-woo stuff, mm. they don't appreciate the importance of the caste system. If they just mm-hmm. realize that all their woo-woo nonsense, uh, sorry, all their all their all their perfectly rational beliefs and behaviors not merely pointed towards some nice sentiments and some some flowery bits mm-hmm. of poetry but actually point towards some metaphysical reality about the the caste system that we should be embodying they would realize that in fact they're only one or two steps away from being full-blown fascists and you need people like Evola to show them that path just just take another step or two. All right. Next next thing we know, Byron Bay <laughs> or, or, or Ubud or Fascist Ubud, Enclave. Ubud in uh in Bali. Which <laughs> is fascist enclaves. <laughs> <laughs> like the Argentinian Nazi. Fascist state of Nimbin. <laughs> They're so or close. Free fascist state. Why am I saying Sorry. well, I mean freedom in a spiritual elevated sense. In the tr- in the only true sense, as Benito true would freedom. say, the true freedom, <laughs> true democracy. 
<laughs> yeah, and um, with the with the cast hierarchy, there are only two groups of people who can exist outside of this. Like you've you've got either pariahs, who are people who've totally returned to the infernal world, uh, to the lunar world. They're not taking part in this society wide right of the caste system, and they're despised. And they might be, say, the descendants of people who've mixed caste and invited chaos and ruined their children's, not just lives, but you know, their, the, the, the fundamental spiritual underpinning of their existence. And then you've got ascetics, <laughs> and they're the good ones. They're, the, um, they're above caste and free from the hierarchy. And we'll get into why that is shortly. Before that, though, let's talk about slaves. I feel like with, with almost everything we do for this podcast, there are a few themes. Like we almost always discuss men and women, almost always discuss race, and almost always discuss slavery. The justifications for slavery are just abundant. I believe that Kaczynski and McKenna were the only two anti-slave people. Yeah. So far. I think all the yeah. others are pretty pro slavery. Like slaves. With like slaves a lot. Yeah. Well, Evola is not. He's not a huge fan of slavery because it represents a degradation. Because uh, he, he describes a slave as someone whose essential nature is work. And in. So, so slaves don't exist if you have a perfect, like a really good caste system. Well, yeah, because they're not, they're not slaves. They're just fulfilling their spiritual duty willfully yeah, and without coercion. Yeah, whereas slavery is a much more miserable condition. So basically, as a caste system degrades, it's the people at the bottom of the pile who have their, spiritual, their spirituality removed first. So say the, the priest king is going to be the last one to lose his spirituality because he's closest to the source. Whereas if you're a Sudra, they're the lowest down. So as spirituality recedes, they are the first ones to fall outside of that spiritual chain. And once they're outside of that spiritual chain, what they perform is no longer according to bhakti. It's no longer transformed into a rite. It is mere work. It is purely material. And at that point, they become a slave. Because their nature becomes something that only exists for material work. They're no longer spiritual beings, so they no longer have spiritual work. Like, Evola is not a fan of the Protestant work ethic. No. It's, no, it's, <laughs> not at all. Or the, or, or, or the Marxist work ethic, for that, for, for that matter. Yeah, Again, he, going he, back he to his really doesn't principles. like... Anything that is materially driven. Yeah. And if, if the title bad. of the book didn't, didn't twig you on, Revolt Against the Modern World, he doesn't like how things are done at the moment. <laughs> he, uh, he sees our society as the worst slaveholding society of all because all jobs are characterised by work. He says, No traditional civilization ever saw such great masses of people condemned to perform shallow, impersonal, automatic jobs. 
In the contemporary slave system, the counterparts of figures such as lords or enlightened rulers are nowhere to be found. This is slavery imposed subtly through the tyranny of the economic factor and through the absurd structures of a more or less collectivized economy. Sums it up. Yep. It's weird, isn't it, how, like, in reading all these different perspectives, some people clash um, or agree. I should, by clash, I mean agree, which doesn't make any sense. Agree very strongly on certain things or come to similar conclusions or uh, even have similar reasoning. Uh, right now, I'm speaking specifically about uh, Kaczynski and Evola. Mm-hmm. So Kaczynski and Evola both are like techno-economic system, slavery, yeah. automation, you know, demeaning, dehumanizing, but for very different reasons. Yeah, their working is different. And one comes out um, an anarcho-primitivist and one comes out a fascist traditionalist. <laughs> I guess they both agree on they don't like the modern world. But one no. just ends up at anarchy and the other ends up at totalitarianism. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I think, again, going back to your analogy with McKenna, is like <laughs> they're losing marks for, for, for working out here. <laughs> Somehow they've gone to the same conclusion. How about, how about we discuss ascetics, the way to step outside the caste hierarchy in a, in a good way? So it was what we were saying before about how everyone's got this demonic totem. Oh, that's right. The that is the wellspring of their stock. And you are, you're basically just an expression of it manifested in the world of, of becoming. And you, you can be ontologically transformed through an initiation if you are of the right demonic totem. Yeah. With with being an ascetic, you transcend all of that um, by bringing out your double or your life's life, um, which is hidden behind you, your finite individuality. And kind of like the this, shadow. Yeah. And this is brought out in extreme circumstances like mortal danger or in death. And this state is essential to becoming an ascetic. How do you become an ascetic? There are two Take parts. heroic doses of mushrooms and have a near-death experience. That's the third part that he never mentioned. <laughs> Ter- <Yes>. Terrence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so one is uh, the path of contemplation. So you can think of this as the, the sigma male path. Oh, and both these paths are only for men. <laughs> one, <laughs> these are only men. Let's not let's not uh, get it twisted here. So the other path is the path of action. So they're both stepping outside of the hierarchy or the game, pressing exit. However, the mm-hmm. path of contemplation is more to do with if correct me if I'm wrong, renunciation and. I guess the the classic example would be, say, Buddha. Renunciation, meditation, contemplation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he compares that way, which is the superior way, to the inferior Christian way. That the inferior Christian renunciation 
um, you still want the things you're renouncing, but you you renounce them to mortify the flesh and to sort of punish yourself. He says the yeah he says the Christian ascetic becomes detached from the objects of desire, not because he no longer has any desire, but in but in order to mortify himself and to escape temptation. The superior way, you say the Buddhist way, where you truly cease to want these things that you're renouncing because you have set your sights upon something higher that you can't achieve through these these material desires. You want to transcend yourself through the the path of contemplation. So so that's the true true sigma male grind set at work there. <laughs> you say that? The Buddha was the original sigma male. The original <laughs> sigma <laughs> The Buddha. Yeah, and then, so, should also say, in these two paths, each path has an... Um, the path of contemplation only has an inner aspect. And you need an inner and an outer aspect present to stabilise a traditional society. And the path of action, this isn't the sigma path, this is the alpha path. This has an inner and an outer aspect. This is to live the heroic life. And you, it's, it's in the same way as an initiation, actually, or it almost is an initiation. You awaken the deepest forces in your person by experiencing what he calls absolute intensity. So it's some sort of life-threatening situation or something that symbolizes it. So it can be fighting in a holy war. So some sort of ritualized war that will bring you near death. Or in sacred games, which symbolise these extreme states. And again, because of how Evola sees symbols, in a real sense, in the world of being, you are undergoing the same processes as if you fought in a holy war. That's how you escape the hierarchy, through the path of asceticism. So Levi, do you know what's even better than a traditional civilization? A total state an all-encompassing a traditional state, empire a traditional empire <laughs> it's even bigger um i would say a traditional empire ruled by an all-powerful godhead <laughs> that communicates directly <laughs> and even brings uh <laughs> brings the divine realm of being into uh under under his 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 dominion his <laughs> oh, this is this is music to my ears. This is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, one one of the interesting things about the empire is that <laughs> he kind of has this idea, just like uh, in a lot of the other parts of his book, where he sort of flips flips what we might think of as like say some part of say modern modern democracies for example on its head and says no that's actually a form of a form of slavery so like the yeah. empire is is all encompassing however only through this all encompassing state can people actually practice um what's it called fides is that is that how you pronounce it fides I think it's either Fides or Fides. I looked. I did look online how to pronounce it because I don't speak Latin, but I found <laughs> two different pronunciations. So it's 
I'm pretty sure I've just said both. I, I keep alternating in this podcast. I don't know how to pronounce it. Fides or Fides. <laughs> and in particular, uh, <laughs> it is able to... How would I say? Uh, it's able to bring other... Like, a whole bunch of nations inside of it. However, they are s- sort of subservient to the the all-encompassing empire. So, the Aztecs were good. The Romans were good. The Aryans were good. All exam- the, the Egyptians were good. All examples of all-powerful states that were also kind of pluralistic, especially the Romans, in their all-encompassing uh, dominion. And expansionist. And, and of course, expansionist. <laughs> so That's wait, a very important you, part. What happens when you take two empires? Oh, he's actually got an answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> in, in the Holy War section, doesn't he? <laughs> About Christianity versus Islam. Yeah, he... Because um, with, with empire, he regards empire as like the highest expression of traditionalism. If you've got a single state ruled by a divine king with a great caste system everyone from birth or in Evelyn's telling from before their birth knows exactly what they're going to be doing every day until they die. Men and women are in, you know, women are, <laughs> are, are partaking in the qualifying substance of men. <laughs> Everything's great. But that's still not perfect. They need to expand. That's when it's perfected. Um, he... Um, one of the and, but good... his his idea of empire is well I, I was going to say it's really fascist and <laughs> it, it's because it is like, it, it is it is really fascist because not, not in the in, not in the way that fascists is used as, <laughs> as we were saying these days it's used in listen to our Mussolini episode if you want um if you want the lowdown on what real fascism is because this is real fascism what, <laughs> this is. I mean, this is real fascism, but this is even... super fascism. As, yeah, well, like as how he, would he defended himself. himself in court. Yeah, he described himself as a super fascist. It's um, he's got this idea that so you've got your trad state, it expands to encompass other states, and he doesn't. It you conquer them and impose this traditional system on them. So you give them your caste system. You make sure men and women behave as they should. You have your ascetics. You've got all of the really good stuff that makes life wonderful. And this means that you don't... It's something like you don't even need to govern by force because everyone is just ordered in their being to become part of the empire. Yeah. He says... um. And obviously, an uh, empire is such only by virtue of higher values that have been attained by a given race, which first of all had to overcome itself and its naturalistic particularities. Only then will a race become the bearer of a principle that is also present in other peoples endowed with a traditional organization, although this principle is present only in a potential form. So I, I think what he's saying is that you've got so you you've got this traditional state which has realized its traditional form and you've got states around it that might be amenable to it but haven't quite almost been initiated 
is a, you know, a, a state that needs to be initiated and they're invaded and subjected to the, the traditional virtues of the empire Surely, we... and in doing so, allow their traditional nature to truly manifest. Would, wouldn't those states that are being subsumed, the people in those states, it wouldn't even have... Maybe it's violent uh, invasion at the beginning, but surely at some point they would just realise that, like, oh, the state that's taking us over, like, they're obviously in contact with some higher realm. Like, we'll just do what they want, right? <laughs> he's, I think so. So he, I mean, he says that conquering them is good. So I, I assume that means violence. Also, because we're going to get into holy wars, <laughs> fighting for a higher traditional ideal is a form of initiatory right. So that like, that's a good thing. But so, yeah. also, he he talks about how so you conquer them. They become part of a traditional system. And then even when they rebel, because everything within the traditional organization is ordered by something in the world of being, even acts of rebellion within the empire serve the greater good. He says, um, yeah, it is possible to achieve the virtue that characterizes the true empire as the single individuals maintain the feeling of being free and everything unfolds in an orderly way. This is possible because, by virtue of the reciprocal compensation resulting from the invisible direction being followed, the partial disorders or individual wills will eventually contribute to the overall order. So... I just don't know if anything you, makes it's, sense. This is why it's super fascism. So in, in, in vanilla fascism, you've got this all-encompassing secular state that imposes, imposes almost a moral framework. Outside of the state, there is no, there's nothing good, there's nothing bad. There is nothing. This is a step further in that it imposes so a, a moral state outside of the state, there isn't good or bad and things like that. As Evola said earlier, it provides a moral framework. But even beyond that, it seems to provide almost a teleological, for listeners, teleology, like the study of ends or something that something is directed towards. It almost provides a teleological framework in that even if you're rebelling within this traditional empire, that rebellion ultimately is transfigured to serve the Empire's ends. It all checks out to me. Well, I mean, that's, that's a given. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a foregone conclusion. The reason why it might not appear to make sense at first blush is a deficiency on our part. <laughs> so, <laughs> as, he, as the title of the book says, uh, uh, just before we move on to Holy War... Um, just highlighting <laughs> that, that this is this is the revolt against the modern world. So, sort of in in a lot of these concepts, he'll even though in the first half of the book he's still explaining his point of view, he'll contrast. Well, this is why uh, the modern world is bad. So he says, yeah. Uh, on the contrary, so secular empires destroy freedom. And they lead to the yeah. He hates modern secular empires. They're like the US, but even to some degree, I'm sure he didn't like um, 
Maybe that's part of his falling out with Mussolini, presumably. <laughs> he he had a falling out with the Italian fascists and the Nazis. He doesn't like modern secular totalitarianism. Yeah. He he really needs it to be uh, a, uh, a full union of church and state. So he says, <laughs> uh, on the contrary, whenever we witness, so on the contrary to um, traditional... Um, empires. On the contrary, whenever we witness in history the triumph of a sovereignty and a unity presiding over multiplicity in a merely, so multiplicity he means like many, many different peoples in a merely material, direct and political way, intervening everywhere, abolishing the autonomy of single groups, leveling in an absolutist fashion every right and every privilege and altering and imposing a common will on various ethnic groups then there cannot be any authentic imperial power since what we are dealing with is no longer an organism, but a mechanism. This type is best represented by the modern national and centralizing states. And that's um, an, interesting, <laughs> an interesting word that he uses, and I think it comes up in Mussolini. Um, Do you mean organic? Maybe Hegel as well. Yeah, this idea of it being organic, mm. it's like an organism. Yeah, Mussolini loved describing everything. Good and so fascist they, as well. These organic. are living entities, and I'm I'm not sure. It's as somebody who absolutely does not share this point of view. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I I find it hard to discern when they're being literal, when these people are being literal, and when they're being metaphorical, or if to some degree he actually means like this is an organism, it's like a super organism. I reckon he's being pretty. I, I I don't think this is a metaphor because he talks about well, I'm going to now cite a metaphor to try to explain why he's not being <laughs> metaphorical. But he he compares secular empires without a divine king um, to a hand as part of a body that rebels against the rest of the body and tries to subjugate the various organs and things like that in the body. And forgetting that they all share a spiritual underpinning. And this is how he views a secular empire trying to crush other states. I, I think he, he sees them as a single body. And not an organism you know, in the sense of, say, an animal or something like that, eh? a spiritual organism, something living within the world of being. It's, it could be hard to know what to make of Evola. Not even some of the time, but most just, of the time. It just, yeah, like, I just, I just don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just at a loss for words. <laughs> I suppose we should you come up with something, something clever to say. Really should. You know what maybe we should do sometime? We should try to come up with jokes specifically based like not just ad lib on the fly jokes but <laughs> spin these <laughs> try to try to concoct <laughs> jokes out of these out of these uh out of these points of view i'm sure we'll figure it out as we go should we move on to um holy war oh yes please <laughs> uh yeah so again just like everything there's a symbolic aspect to to war and the best, <laughs> the best thing about war, <laughs> other than other than the violence, 
and, and subjugating other people is that it's also an it's also an opportunity for you to embody through external actions internal transformations and your connection to the world of being jack do you uh do you want to expand that sounds a little bit? so good <laughs> that sounds so good <laughs> yeah so it in short he views fighting in a holy war so a war that is that is directed towards a higher purpose if you're fighting in the war in the spirit of bhakti that so how how you perform an action for the action itself if you do that fighting in a war becomes an initiatory right it becomes something that ontologically transforms you and directs your actions upwards basically if the war mirrors or is or symbolizes some sort of conflict in the world of being you end up taking part in that conflict through the symbol so he talks about how in the ancient hellenic world warfare would represent the struggle between the olympian element of order so say the olympian gods like zeus etc and the titanic demonic feminine chaos and so when when ancient greeks would participate in wars that mirrored this this conflict in the world of being then they themselves would almost partake in that conflict and be transformed be initiated oh i get it sorry i was just reading through your notes again um very interesting so so you see how in evla there is actually quite a bit of i don't want to say uh, sort of sort of logic that things are quite consistent so the lesser war, the physical, the like the violence with an enemy, is the external. Maybe war. we should ma- explain what the greater and lesser wars are. So the lesser, the lesser holy war around is the terminology. The external war. It's where you actually go to war with the enemies, say the samurai, mm. or um, Islam or the Crusades, like like as in Islamic yeah. uh, holy warriors. Um, the well, the, the ideas of the greater and lesser holy wars he took from Islam. He quite he really likes those ideas. <laughs> and the the greater holy war is the internal. What's going on in the inside? So overcoming one's, mm-hmm. um, yeah, inferior inferior nature, I suppose. Um, so if there's any other way to put that, is there a better way to put that? The fact that you're, just I think he does use inferior nature, but that's probably a direct quote. And and. Just like with the hero or with the ascetic who needs to, there's like the path of contemplation for the ascetic is uh, in, a, in a way maybe analogous to the lesser holy war, whereas the path to act through action and the hero, the hero ascetic is kind of analogous to the uh, greater holy war in that the, the external battle is reflected by an internal battle or sorry the internal battle overcoming one's inferior nature is reflected in an outer battle and it's in fact the intensity of the external battle itself that provides the uh the fertile ground on which you have 
sort of sufficient, yeah, as I said, intensity to to go through this transformation and ha- and overcome your inferior, uh, your inferior nature. Yeah, it's um, when a war is is within, holy. So when when it is symbolizing the thinkings, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing with Evelyn. If you if you accept some of his precepts, things make logical sense. It's just if you don't accept them, then they they don't. But it was as you were saying with um the greater and lesser holy wars. These are paths to asceticism through the 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 path of action, and people would use the lesser holy war so. Slashing people with a sword on the battlefield to wage the greater holy war, which was overcoming yourself and achieving asceticism, achieving transformation through an intense state, say, of life or death struggles. And he talks about. So he uses the example in Islam of that martyrdom in waging the lesser holy war leads to paradise. And he takes this to be an imperfect rendering or an imperfect realisation of the truth that if you are initiated, you don't die. Remember, you, you're initiated, you die. And instead of your, your persona dissolving into your demonic totem... It lives forever in the world of being. And so the, the Islamic belief in martyrdom leading to paradise, he sees as a degraded recognition of this, this greater truth. So he says, he says those, who have, those who have experienced the greater holy war during the lesser holy war have awakened a power that most likely will help them overcome the crisis of death. This power having already liberated them from the enemy and from the infidel, will help them avoid the fate of Hades. Sums it up. Sums it up. So, <laughs> similarly... Imagine living in this guy's ideal society. You're waging a holy war. Say, your biggest alpha chads, who are also a city, have harems. Mm. harems. They go out. They die on the battlefield. They live forever and their harem all throw themselves on their funeral peers, pies. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. And that's if they all that's if things go well. Man, this guy is living a fucking cuckoo town, man. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is on like another planet. My God. <laughs> and it's funny to think that this guy was he, the guy wrote like 20 books or something didn't 30 books oh more than i think he wrote like 25 26 books he was prolific and and the guy was like actively going around hobnobbing with dictators uh advocating <laughs> advocating this worldview. when you say dictators we should like you know there's a hierarchy of, of well lesser lesser extremity Sec- we're, secular dictators no, we're talking about like hitler and Mussolini. <laughs> Yeah, like the dictators. <laughs> the uh, he the only way he could have rounded that sort of scorecard off would have been to go over and have like dinner with uh with Stalin Mao. <laughs> and Mao. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure he would have really disliked them because they were atheist states, right? So he must have really disliked them. Yeah, well, I I'm not convinced a state like he describes has really ever existed. So I'm not sure he'd be happy with anything. 
Well, you, that's because you haven't seen the truth, Jack. We haven't seen the truth. In book two, studied, we will have discuss. Have you studied history, mate? You ever picked up a book? <laughs> I've studied Evola. <laughs> In so we're discussing the first the first part of Revolt Against the Modern World. In the second part, we'll get much more into discussing the historical realities of traditionalism in Atlantis. So let's talk about the Crusades. Yeah, they were mad. <laughs> because the the interesting thing is he's got here two two sibling religions which are to some degree depending on what you think about the world uh opposed to one another perhaps even mutually exclusive they they make claims about their particular head honcho that invalidates the claims of the other head head honcho and he says those two religious worlds going at it was actually a really good thing because it he says he says in rising up in arms against one another, Islam and Christianity gave witness to the unity of the traditional spirit. And <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> wait nice. a second, what? <laughs> wait, that's because you're you're just focusing on events in the world of becoming. You need to focus on the world of being. Man. I suppose if they're both fighting the great, as, as opposed as opposed to looking at this through a materialistic modern lens of seeing it just as mm. they're going to physical war which would be the lesser holy war and we actually viewed it through the, the prism CBO, of man. the greater holy war then it's actually the opportunity for two great civilizations to uh, practice all of these principles they're talking about to achieve mm-hmm. uh, ascetic martyrdom and uh, or heroic martyrdom within their spiritual systems through through this like massive holy war against one another yeah well just picture it picture how good the crusades were okay so you've got two (laughs) groups of people fighting each other in the spirit of bhakti okay he talks about how it was really good because so so from the christian perspective the crusades achieved this universality and a super nationalism as in european leaders came together and served the same sacred enterprise. It didn't matter that they would invade each other using crusades as a pretext. That's a historical <laughs> falsity. They came together for the sacred ideal and fought Muslims. And in doing so, they fought in the spirit of bhakti. They weren't, he says that they weren't <laughs> so concerned with things like material losses. It's more they, they fought <laughs> it's for just the a flesh wound. meaning of fighting. Yeah, exactly. So even if... Even if they all got killed, if if you are short-sighted and only look at things in terms of the world of becoming, yeah, it's bad. If you look at it in terms of the world of being, though, that's a whole lot of people who have been ontologically transformed and now live forever in the world of being. And oh, yeah, similarly, from the Muslim side, maybe you think, oh, damn, it's shit. Their lands got invaded and they're having to fight people off. No, 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 no. This is really good because <laughs> whenever they die... And they are fighting in the spirit of bhakti. They too are ontologically transformed. They follow the path of asceticism, the path of action, and they live forever. So you see how good it is? It is so good. You know how, say, people talk about civil wars as being the worst type of wars for a country because every casualty is of that country. This is like the, the reverse. 
This is perfect. <laughs> every casualty, every casualty, we win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah, the yeah. best war. So, d- okay, say you, I'm a Muslim and you're a Christian, Jack. We go to holy war against one another and we do the yeah. greater holy war and just by pure good fortune, we happen to kill each other at the same time and we mm-hmm. both achieve uh, transcendent martyrdom and we both ascend or transcend the second death. Will we exist in the realm of being like, will we be neighbours? Will we be on the, in the same neighbourhood in the world of being? Or do we hang out there I mean, together? surely... Like, or do we get separate? Least, do like, we have, like, a Muslim world of being and a, and a, and a Christian world of being? Or, or they... I assume there's only one world of being. And say, because Evola regarded Islam and Christianity as pretty degraded forms of tradition. So it's, it's right, not going to resemble right, either right. of those. It's going to be because like neither of them have, have, a, have a sacred and god Islam king, and and super Hinduism. So whatever those things were, like the best parts, of the mo- the best, most bloodthirsty part. Oh, sorry, not bloodthirsty. Um, pure and holy parts of those, all distilled in some prehistoric golden age. That religion is is reflective of is more akin to what the the, the world of being is like. And that's where we're going to be hanging out after we kill one another. Probably. It's hard to know what the world of being would actually be like because it's also meant to be totally unchanging. (laughs) Because it's masculine and solar. Yes. Hmm. (laughs) So does that mean... (laughs) Do you just kind of exist as as just a... Just a... An eternal circle or something but you have no you have no there's no delta there's no like change in velocity change in displacement mm. or anything it's just you're just sort of there somewhere i guess so <laughs> i mean we yeah. i've never probably the best way to, to think answer about that question what is, the world is if we like. both went well, maybe we should just both go die in a holy war and then we can see for ourselves. Are you proposing that we go and join ISIS, Jack? Look, that's, that's one option. <laughs> or we, there... can, we can start a crusade. We can stir the Australian public up and try and <laughs> start, start a crusade. Try to have a crusade. <laughs> I'm not a Christian, but, you know, I could, but I could try to get it. around it. Yeah. Okay, what about... This versus, bef- yeah, before we move on to sacred games, what about holy wars versus modern wars? Modern wars suck. Because when you die, you just die. You don't, you don't become <laughs> transfigured. You're just NPC death. You don't get to respawn. Yeah, exactly. You're just deleted. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, because you're no longer you're no longer fighting for any higher ideal. You're no longer waging the greater holy war through the lesser holy war. Instead, you're just you're reduced to to being an animal. You're reduced to reflex. And in this day and age, you're reduced to cannon fodder. Yeah, it's all. It's all. I get the idea. I get the feeling that he really liked swords, 
And this is why I think it's probably an incel because I have a feeling that incels like swords a lot. <laughs> because he, he doesn't like... He had like... a katana collection at home. Yeah, he had a katana collection, yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, he really liked swords because he doesn't like machine guns and these. he doesn't like the technologization and the mechanization of war. This idea that you can just roll mm. in to a city with bombs and just level it to the ground. That's no fun. There's no opportunity for, for, for martyrdom, right? So he doesn't like that, but he does like Samurais. Yeah, so, he does, he's brought up Samurais a few times. I assume he probably likes Phalanx, the Phalanx. He probably likes anything where you can have a really good scene from like 300 or The Last Samurai. If, yeah, if you could beat I, I reckon. In a, in a video game. Yeah, well, I mean, not not like a first-person shooter or something. No, like more like God of War, I would assume. Yeah, probably some something like that. He um, <laughs> he says he says of modern war, science has promoted an extreme mechanization and technologization of war so much so that today war is not a matter of man against man, but of machines against man. Rational systems of mass extermination are being employed through indiscriminate air raids, atomic weapons and chemical warfare that leave no hope and no way out. Such systems could once have been devised only to exterminate germs and insects. So he, he sees modern war as terrible. It's totally stripped of meaning. It exists only to exterminate humans as animals. And in a, in a very strange way, like, he's right. Yeah, I don't... This is an area of agreement. The, I don't think war was ever all that good. It's just that's a lot where worse you're, now. You're wrong, Jack, because there was a time yeah, okay. it was good. War, war was really good, and now it's not good. <laughs> Sacred Games. Sacred Games. Fine judgment. Sacred Games are pretty interesting because... Um, so you've, you, you can become a, a virile man... If you're, if you're born the right way, of course, as a precondition, you're born into a high caste. Through initiation, you can also be initiated by fighting in a holy war. And because of how Evola views symbols as these, these portals between the world of being and the world of becoming, they, they're very real objects, a sacred game serves the same function as a holy war. And when we say sacred games, we mean things like Say the Olympics, not the ones now, which suck, because you, you, no Modern. one is being spiritually transfigured. But the the good old ones. Let's just pause for a second and remember that women are not allowed at the games. They had a strongly virile character, so that would only be right. <laughs> that only makes sense. <laughs> Again, just were there parallels between the games and war? I think that's what he is saying, right? That's it's exactly also, what he was saying. Yeah. So it's an opportunity to embody the same spirit as, as the Holy War, except instead of going to actual war, you're doing these games. Yeah. They, these games were... They tie together so many things in Evola because they, they were rituals. And remember how rituals reached out into the world of being and harnessed or nourished the power of some non-human entity. And when you perform a sacred or ritualistic game, you, you 
either call upon beings in the world of being or you manifest victory. A victory is this literal object or a literal being in the world of being. And you can use that creature's power for various things. So Romans would use them. While Romans were waging war, they would also have games that Evola says renewed the power of victory and victory would help those soldiers on the battlefield. So it was really dangerous to neglect these games. You could have really bad, uh, I was about to say real world consequences, but you know, false world of becoming consequences <laughs> for neglecting these games or doing it badly. And, and does he make a point that the real victory is a spirit? I'm not misremembering, am I? I, I hope I'm not. That the real victory is a spiritual victory. So, like, in a way, if you're about to go into a battlefield or if you're about to go into the games, whether or not you're going to win that battle or that, that game, in a way, has already been decided by your, your uh, spiritual, uh, by, I suppose, your virtue. So, have you performed the, the correct rites, et cetera, et cetera. His point was that in the world of being... This and, say, fighting in a war, they're the same thing. He says, Wherever the actions of the spirit take place within the body of real actions and events, a real parallelism can be established between the physical and the metaphysical, the visible and the invisible. Therefore, those actions can appear as the occult counterpart of warrior feats or competitive events that have a real victory as their climax. So it's in the world of being, you've got this victory that involves someone overcoming themselves and someone can be spiritually transformed and pass that transformation on to their their offspring like this this is something that you can form a a ritual cult around or you can perform rites to like fighting in a holy war and competing in sacred games they they're both manifestations of the same object in the world of being yeah so they have a literal equivalence in, in the world of... In the world of being. And if you use the argument from intensity with going back to the hero, the hero and the, the ascetic, um, in order to... And the, the greater holy war, it's a reflection... The greater holy war is a reflection of an internal battle and the path of action is an internal battle as well as taking action externally. So in a weird way, I see what he's saying. He's saying yeah. that all these mechanisms are essentially uh, cultivating the same outcome in the world of being. And because the world of being is actually antecedent to and, and superior to the world. Of, and in a, in, a, in a very real sense, it is causally prior to everything that happens in the world of, becoming yeah they're all they all have the same impact on the world of being doing these these various things yep god that's such a strange way of looking at the world <laughs> yeah oh here's here's a quote that just reinforces that he says what has been said about the notion of holy war applies in this context as well as an aside this context being sacred games the heroic exaltation found in competition and victory, once it was given a ritual meaning, became the imitation of, or the introduction to, 
that higher and purer impetus the initiate used to defeat death. So yeah, the um, the Olympics it's just so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Evla is quite unlike other things that I've read. Is this good fodder for your writing? Is this giving you any inspiration for the stuff that you're writing about? Not really. Maybe one day. Maybe more one... more life inspiration. <laughs> how to lead the proper existence and how to escape the second death, how not to be reabsorbed into my demonic totem once I die. You know what? I, I could see you working this. If you do novel number three, which I, I hope you do do, uh, if you do do novel number three or novel number N, I'm sure we'll see some Evola influences at some point. You'll work, you'll work in this stuff. Because <laughs> it's pretty juicy. Heroic traditionalist fiction. <laughs> okay. There's a, lot um, of, there's a lot of material. He's got over 20 other books. If you ever want to do an Evola marathon, just read all of them. Um, Divine Judgment, Evolution versus de- Degradation, Space and Time degradation of society divine and non-divine law Mm -hmm. divine judgment's pretty interesting because everything happening in this world the world of becoming is a mere reflection of events in the world of being oh yeah you can use (laughs) you can use certain oriented actions to ascertain whether something is true or not you know, in the good old days when you used to, if you didn't like a woman, you'd pros- you'd you'd call her a witch and she'd be killed. Well, no, she'd be Those... on, on trial. She'd be put on trial. She'd be put on trial. And if she were in fact fatally. a witch, she would die. Yeah. And if she... Yeah. <laughs> Evel is all for that. <laughs> he says, um, just as the law was traditionally believed to have a divine origin... Likewise, injustice was considered to be a violation of the divine law and to be detectable through the outcome of a human action that had been given an adequate orientation. (laughs) So you know how, I don't know, they'd tie rocks to a woman's body and throw her in a river and if she floated, she was a witch and she'd be killed and if she sank and drowned, then she wasn't a witch, but they'd bury her nicely. (laughs) Yeah. Evler is saying that if you perform these actions correctly, yes, they actually will determine what you're trying to find out. They will be a good litmus test. Like trial by combat, if it's done in an appropriately sacred manner, the outcome of that will determine which of the two combatants was right or innocent or whatever else you were trying to ascertain. How good is that? Yes. That, that that would solve so many problems today. Imagine. <laughs> solve so many problems. Yeah. So, yeah. If you are a witch, I think I remember, this is either a Monty Python skit or something. It was, you throw the witch to the, sorry, the, the defendant. <laughs> you throw the defendant the def- to, the bottom of, <laughs> to the bottom of a river with stones around her, her, her feet. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> and the beautiful thing is, if she dies at the bottom of the river, she it's actually a good thing for her to die because then she's died an innocent woman and it's a holy death. Mm. She's died defending her honour. <laughs> I wonder if that would spiritually transfigure her. Oh, no, but 
See, she only gets the good stuff from a man. So if she were married to someone, then the only way she could be transfigured would be by following the ascetic path of the lover. Well, the my... I wonder whether that would entail any sort of ontological transformation, ontological transformation. Forever, or whether she'd just die. <laughs> hmm. These the are the important questions. questions. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the other one being trial by combat. Uh, that's something I think we should bring back. <laughs> I, would, I, I, I strongly support mediating international relations by trials of combat by heads of state. <laughs> Vlad and Benji. Scott Morrison versus Xi Jinping. Oh, oh shirt front him. Bare knuckle boxing. <laughs> I I think that uh hmm. I think that ScoMo would get the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> yeah, I, probably would I end up being Xi Vladimir Jinping. Putin would kill everyone. Yeah. And Benji. I reckon Benji. <laughs> yeah, but he's not a head of state. <laughs> BB Well, that's what he says on the surface, <laughs> He's Jack. not a head of state. He's not <laughs> leading any state. So it appears, Jack. BB, BB is always leading. I wonder whether Vitaly Klitschko is still... I think he was the mayor of Kiev. Maybe Kiev would come to rule the world. He's a does big scary count? guy. Does, does Kiev count as a, as a sovereign entity? Sure, why not? Well, if Vitaly Klitschko beats enough people in <laughs> in divine combat, then so if yes. if uh, if the Dalai Lama wants his state back, he needs to go, get into the the octagon with the other heads of state. <laughs> <laughs> what else was there? Oh yeah, um, torture. Also, this is another divine judgment because good thing. the truth can magically protect someone. So um, from pain. <laughs> yeah, so torture actually does work. We've yes. um, we've worked it out. Evola has the answers. Torture works because because if, if you if, torture them, if it is performed in a spiritual manner, if you, if you spiritually are, torture if you are someone, ritualistic about it, then this is the logic, right? If I'm following correctly, you torture them. And if the torture is ineffective, so you've done the you've done it correctly, you've you've performed the right. So in a way, the yeah. the torture is a, is a right or a ritual. You yeah. performed the ritualistic torture correctly, and it doesn't work, and they're not suffering. Then that proves their innocence. <laughs> but if you what I want to know is where's the end point? If you torture them and it doesn't, and they they're not resistant to it, then that proves their guilt. <laughs> And you should keep on torturing them. <laughs> I just wonder though, where's the end point? So suppose you do, you, I don't know, rip out their toenails or something in a ritualistic manner and they don't talk. When do you say, okay, well, obviously they're innocent or they, they don't know what we want to, to get yeah, out how of How much them. pain? How much pain? At, at what point do you stop and say, okay, clearly because, because this is, a reflection of something that is occurring in the world of being clearly torturing this person any further won't bear any fruit or oh, they're innocent and we've got it wrong so what is it that you rip out their toenail they don't feel any pain and the toenail like grows back i don't know he didn't get into specifics about how to divinely torture someone unfortunately <laughs> and how to discern their innocence from the ineffectiveness of the torture i, so, I kind of wish you'd gone into detail with this one <laughs> 
It would have been very helpful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but now um, in our fallen world, we only view things like trials of strength or torture mechanically with no spiritual dimension, and that saps them of their divine power. So if if today we were to torture someone, it's it's not going to be a reflection of whether they're innocent or not or whether they have some particular piece of information or not because we own, we believe it to be purely mechanical and that severs the divine link. And the same goes for trial by combat, unfortunately. So Evelyn's got um, different ideas of time and space. This is actually one part which... I'm not saying it's it's true, but it's actually genuinely interesting. If if you, if you put aside yeah. all of the the bhakti and and the justification of torture <laughs> and and the holy war, the, this particular concept is actually quite interesting. So yeah, have... but I mean, you can't. It's not in. It's not easily separable from those things because no. in Evola, his concepts fit together and justify each other fairly neatly so his ideas of time and space are interesting but you have to bear in mind that they can easily be used to justify caste system or torturing people he's using them to to justify the the caste system in a totalitarian (laughs) state but they are they actually really are quite interesting yeah so time time so we'll compare it to our modern conception of time so our yeah. modern conception, and putting aside sort of uh, modern physics, but the sort of modern mm. intuitive or general yeah. conception of time is that it's a linear sequence of events. Pretty straightforward. One yeah. event comes after this, the other. In a, this in a very irreversible sequence. Yeah. And that he describes it as reciprocal indifference. There's a reciprocal indifference between time and its contents or between the succession of moments and what happens in those moments. Those two things don't have a bearing so on each other. So time is just a stack of cards being flicked. Yeah. And you're just traversing through the stack. And it doesn't matter what's on those cards. They're flicked at the same rate. Yeah. And the, the deck is indifferent to you and your, and your life. Yeah. But... Real time, traditional time. Yeah. Evola says, Time in traditional civilizations was not a linear historical time. Time in becoming are related to what is superior to time. And in this way, the perception of time undergoes a spiritual transformation. (laughs) He's all about those transformations. (laughs) So time, this is where I think this is... This is peak woo-woo. This is my favourite bit. Because <laughs> peak woo-woo. <laughs> because everybody loves cyclical time, right? We all love the moon and the sun doing their Maybe thing. Maybe that's because it's true. The, we all love the seasons, right? Very natural. But, and I don't want to give too much away, but have, have y'all ever heard of the Kali Yuga? <laughs> <laughs> These giant cycles. Okay, so essentially traditional time is cyclical. The world operates on these. Did he did he actually unpack it a huge amount, like the exact like, notion of <laughs> how these cycles work, or was it? Not so much. Vague. He goes into more detail 
about that in the second part of the book. But in the first part of the book, he says, like, you have this cyclical time. The way he talks about it is, so with, with modern time, how you've got this succession of events and each moment is in itself basically equivalent to any other moment. The contents might change, but the, the succession of moments is, is constant. Whereas he says in traditional time, each moment is non-fungible. So some moment now might be superior or inferior in quality to some other moment. So it's a qualitative view of time rather than a quantitative view that we fallen moderns have. And these cycles, you have these large cycles within which he says the same things happen and the cycle ends and it repeats. You have the same sequence of events. And in, that's in the world of being. In the world of being, you have the same events over and over and over again. In the world of becoming, those events might manifest slightly differently. And to an untrained eye, it might look like they're different events. But they're actually reflections or symbols of the same thing in the world of being. So this, is this how he's kind of... He's, uh, he's setting up the fact... I think what he's doing... Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here and try to unpack this a little bit. But one of the things that he has to deal with in his philosophy is essentially that the world of becoming is changing all the time. And he has also set up the axiom that the world of being is itself the prime cause of everything that happens in the world of becoming. Now, that sets up an internal contradiction, right? Where the world of becoming is changing and the primary cause is the world of being, then doesn't that imply that the world of being is always changing? He can get out of that or he can not get out of it. He can explain that the world of becoming, the world of being is in fact not changing if viewed through the lens of these giant cycles, which are always repeating. So on that, in that level and going back to the idea of polarity, of of like a unmoved center around which things move it's kind of alluding to that same same thinking so it's mm-hmm. not changing but it has a cycle so it's not changing in its cycle but it, that change imprints itself on the world of becoming yeah i think or am i reading too much into this <laughs> i had well, it's, it's what we were saying before i've had a hard time quite imagining what the world of being really looks like because on one hand he talks about it as being masculine and the the primary characteristic of masculinity is an unchangingness but at the same time in the world of becoming yeah it, things here are effects of events in the world of being but cause and effect implies some sort of like, I don't know how you have cause and effect without time or without a sequence of events, which implies change. But I guess, yeah, if you just think of time as looping over and over and over again, I guess you can say it's unchanging because the same things just keep occurring. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if it's... I'm... 
I'm sure you could figure out some way that it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) What about... So, as with time, so with space. Our Our modern view of time is wrong, where we view... And again, he's talking about our modern experience of time. He does point out that he's not talking about physics. But in our everyday experience of time, it's sort of like... uh, Of space, sorry. Space is like this container that events occur in. And different parts of space he saw... he, He says in the modern experience of the world, they're sort of fungible. Like an event occurring in one place, it could occur somewhere else in the same way. Whereas he says in traditional, traditionally different parts of space were non-fungible. Different parts of space correspond to different parts of the world of being. Which is why I say certain rituals should only be performed in certain places and at certain times. Because those times and places are qualitatively different. Like... I... Different points in space are different. But he's not... The thing is, if I just take it at face value, it's like, sure, points in space are different, but he's not saying in a physical sense. No, they have a different spiritual... Yeah. Some are spiritually superior and some are inferior. Uh, You know where he's got this from? He's thinking like, uh, you know, in the Vedic religions and stuff, and they talk about in Buddhism, they're like these places you know like buddha the buddha went to um like these shrines or whatever that were inhabited by i think they're called the uh what are they called they're like these snake demon things um and he would like get rid of them right but those snake demon things whatever they're called starts with n um is like clear them out, but those were like the dominions of of those snake people things. And <laughs> I sound like I have no idea what I'm talking about because I don't. <laughs> or, or how in like Shintoism, like there's certain so like a waterfall will have a, a particular spirit, whatever. So like, uh, or in uh, indigenous in certain indigenous Australian places or like tribes, uh, you'd have like certain like specific locations would have a spirit or, or a story associated with it. And so it's not merely that it's a particular physical location. It's that there's something in the spiritual realm that associates with that place. I think that's what he's trying to say. He, um... And that would also relate to the games, right? Yeah, because the they need how... to be performed at certain times and in certain places. To be ritually significant. So you perform, say, the Olympics, the ancient Greek Olympics, at a particular time because that corresponds to the time in the in the world of being, in their in the being in the world of being cycle. But also you have to do it on a particular ground. Or you have to yeah. have the battle on a particular ground. <laughs> and, oh no, he, he he uses this to justify um aristocratic land holdings. Because he says there are two ways to um to inhabit land. There's the the totemic way, the demotic way, for those who don't go beyond ordinary life, where people 
people who are not highborn and not initiated will perform telluric demonic rites in a piece of land in, as part of a matriarchal and a communist society <laughs> to, re- to reflect, he calls it the promiscuity of the land because it hasn't been, um, it, it hasn't been consecrated. The other way of occupying land is elevated and aristocratic because someone who is spiritually awakened, someone who has been initiated, will perform some sort of magic or a rite on a piece of land and impose a triumphal seal upon it. You cleanse the demonic character of that land. And from then on, that land can only be claimed by, not only by aristocrats, but aristocrats of the particular stock of the, of the person who initially placed that triumphal seal upon it. And these, these people have a deep spiritual connection to the land and it's their role to continue performing rites to renew that triumphal seal in the world of, of being, to nourish it and to draw power from it. Does that make sense to you? So much sense. It makes so much sense. <laughs> I just can't even handle it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm going insane with how much sense it makes. <laughs> so you're embossing the land with your aristocratic emblem. In a spiritual uh, in, sense. In a spiritual yes. sense. But in, in the world of being at that location, well, no, because the world of being doesn't change. So maybe you just happen to align your ritual with the cycle at the time that the emblem imprints on that piece of land. Yeah, that could be. That could be what happens. Man, man, you'd want to be good at timing with this stuff. When, oh, I mean, you can't help it, right? You just... No, because he, he's saying everything's like predetermined, isn't he? You like... Like the stuff with uh, if you're fighting against the emperor, you're still serving the higher good of the of the of the of the empire, in a weird way, like teleologically. So you can't help but mm. perform the rites at the, at the correct time. I wonder if that's only the case though. If you live in a traditional society, hmm, interesting. Because that only happened when you lived in a real empire. That, say, any action you took ended up serving the empire. empire. Yeah. I wonder if you live, if you're like us and you don't live in a a real trad society anymore, if that's the case. So, unfortunately, today we, we don't see space and time for what they really are. But traditional people did. They were much more in tune with with how space and time truly work. And for Evola, this is the basis for mythology. He says, mythology really is these traditional people who were much more in tune with how space and time work, making stories according to their imagination, but not arbitrarily, making stories to describe how the world truly works. And if you have a trained eye and you look through different mythologies, you can see common threads, which is how Evola has, has derived his worldview. He says, Every traditional mythology arises as a necessary process in the individual consciousness, the origin of which resides in real, um, though unconscious and obscure, relationships with a higher reality. 
These relationships are then dramatized in various ways by the power of the imagination. I think this is this is one of the fundamental ways that Evola works out how the world truly is by comparing different mythologies, knowing that traditional man saw the the structure of the world more clearly than we do now. So, okay, so a person who lives in a traditional society, they're also, they're not just going, it's not like you and me, this is the thing, okay, to be a bat, what's it like to be a bat? What's it like to be a person in a traditional society? You can't merely imagine yourself having a dream right now because we live in a degraded society where we, we're, we're not in, uh, in a social system that's enriched by constant ritual magic and uh, mm-hmm. superior god king and a total state. <laughs> we, we, when we dream, when we have dreams, I suppose under his logic, would our dreams too be degraded? So they're just a mere shadow of what they could be if we were living in a traditional society. Maybe our dreams would be much more uh, vivid or much more meaningful or correspond more uh, tangibly to events when we're awake. I think dreaming is one thing, but Evola seems to be saying that your traditional man, say, wandering through the forest or whatever will see the symbols upon the world of becoming more clearly than we will. Yeah, yeah. They they intuitively saw the like meaning behind different yeah, yeah. times and spaces. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's got this idea that modern modern the modern view of human development has been that things are evolving, things are getting better and better. As time goes on, we're smarter today than we were tomorrow, where we behave in a more morally just way than we used to. Whereas for Evola, he sees, and remember, this is in the context of cyclical time, he sees things as just getting worse. There used to be a golden age. I'm not using that term, but he he actually describes it as a golden age. There used to be a golden age. Things have just been getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And we are now in a dark age, the Kali Yuga. Yeah. In the cycle. But isn't it a good thing? uh, Because it's on a cycle, we'll end up back at the golden age. Like, not us, not you and I, because we're filthy moderns. But uh, presumably Mm -hmm. at some point, the world will somehow return into the, the, the golden age. Eventually, you would assume you would assume it'll return because it's it's cyclical. But yeah, unfortunately, we have to suck up. So, what are some the, of the symptoms of degradation? Oh, I mean, look, where <laughs> where to begin? We we have no caste system. That's a big degradation. So we we've come to worship the pariah, the person who stands outside the caste system. Women who don't fulfil their feminine duties. We've come to not only accept, but celebrate them. (laughs) And that has allowed chaos in, because our society no longer reflects the world of being. We've severed our connection with the world of being, which just invites... Which invites in chthonic 
telluric feminine chaos. Individualism. Individualism's really bad. And even in this even in the the totalitarian states that we do have, they're not they're they're secular totalitarian states. Yeah. They they have no link to above. Yeah. So we we uh in the modern world think that we're so hoity toity, so so far up on our high horses because we have all this modern technology like speed of light, high definition, transcontinental communication for free or for very cheap that allows us to make this podcast pish posh. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we don't have is we don't have rites and initiations performed by a well-ordained <laughs> a god king god king <laughs> on the battleground of his uh of, of the spirit of the ground mm-hmm. and and so we have this kind of illusion or this conceit of progress but it's actually degradation it's degradation. Yeah. It's progress in the material realm, but that's really an illusion and it's really a distraction from our degradation in the superior realm. Even though if every if everything happening in the world of being is a reflect uh, everything happening in the world of becoming is a reflection of what actually happens in the world of being, would our technological progress be mirroring some aspect of the world of being? Cuz I'm never Evola seems he says sometimes that everything in the world of being is just a consequence of something. Everything in the world of becoming is a consequence of something happening in the world of being. But if you lose your link to above, if you no longer have a divine king manifesting an objective spiritual principle, do things here start happening that aren't happening in the world of being? Like surely, but, our, surely our technological development is just a reflection of things happening in the world of being as well. Could 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 you say that it's the the causal component is the disconnection? So the fact of the disconnection. So it's like um, the wheel comes off a cart, and the cart falls over, and the wheel spins off everything that comes up after the initial moment of disconnection is still a consequence of that disconnection, even if the kind of act of disconnecting is not currently happening still. Yeah. Or he, on several occasions, he talks about tradition as creating a riverbed through which things in the world of being flow and it prevents chaos. And when you do things like not maintain a caste system, you destroy the riverbed and everything is chaos. So maybe it's what things things today are still consequences of occurrences in the world of being. However, the world of being is no longer being influenced by a divine king or by a divine aristocracy who make it ordered rather than chaotic. But in that case, then it's no longer unchanging and masculine. That's sounding very feminine. So, I I don't... I feel like... Okay, I know... All right, so how... How is he getting his cake and eating it too? Because he wants to have the cause and effect relationship between the world of being and becoming. 
but he also wants yeah. to have the degradation, the claim that the modern world is degrading. Is that because the world of, be- of the world of being is degrading because it is no longer being, being tended by, to by to, yeah. yep. aristocrats via right? So the world of being itself is, but then that would that would negate the doctrine of uh, non-change. Maybe it's because the aristocrats they they have being in the world of being, and have yep. power in the world of being. So maybe it is the world of being improving itself, and that is reflected in the world of becoming as aristocrats performing rituals. Maybe that's it. Okay, so they've stopped performing those rituals in the world of being? Maybe, and maybe just cyclically, maybe cyclically it stops self-overcoming and that is reflected in the world of becoming as a dark age or as degradation. Right. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. That seems okay, if we don't I'm, if we don't if we don't I'm, if we don't I'm unpack it any this. further if we go no further <laughs> we can stop we we can accept it as this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't okay. really like it, but the the important takeaway is that society sucks, <laughs> and and Evel is right. That's the most important takeaways. <laughs> yeah, well, we we don't have a connection to above anymore. And that's that's what necessary that's what's necessary to maintain tradition. He says only when a civilization's generating root from above is no longer alive and its spiritual race is worn out or broken does its decline set in. And this is in tandem with its secularization and humanization. The more that that link to above degrades, the more your the more society degrades, the more secular it becomes, the more humanist it becomes. Holy hell. <laughs> I don't think I've you ever read stuff. anybody I disagree with so much. <laughs> what about Varg? Although I guess I guess Varg <laughs> doesn't dispute how time works. Yeah, he doesn't dispute how time works and he's not and he you know, he also says like eat healthy and go for a run in the forest. So wrapping up, what Overall, what are your thoughts on revolt against the modern world, Levi? Very strange. <laughs> it's it's pretty, pretty alien. It's pretty out there. Look, it's nice that he's not hateful. That's a weird thing to say. He's not. There's, I don't get the sense that he's like angry or hateful about things. He's quite academic, quite strange, um, and advocates things that i definitely disagree with but it's very interesting from from one point of view if you look at it i think fiction writers or people who (laughs) create video games might get a lot out of reading evola just because it's full of so much weirdness and he takes all these uh comparative mythologies and stuff and draws really strange can you imagine like an an mmorpg based on evola's worldview i actually think he could like i i actually do think he could do that I think it'd be really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jack? What What are your thoughts coming away from it after part part one? I went into Evola expecting to really hate it, and enjoyed reading it. I don't. I I agree with almost none of it because, as we've pointed out several times, 
he's got these first principles that he doesn't justify. And if you don't agree with them, then you, you can't progress. There's, you just, you just don't agree with, with what he says. And I don't really agree with any of his first principles. So I agree with almost nothing in this book, but it's quite satisfying because if you, if you just assume, if you just take those first principles, put them to the side and say, okay, well, I'll just pretend these are true. In the book, things tend to fit together quite nicely. He forms quite a satisfying, totally alien worldview that, that does function. As I was reading it, I, I thought, oh yeah, when I was reading about why the caste system is good and necessary, I thought, oh yeah, this, you know, within the context of Evola, makes sense. It was an odd experience reading something that <laughs> I, I, I just totally disagreed with, but functioned if you turned off certain parts of your brain. I'd probably <laughs> give it, I reckon I'd give it a seven and a half out of 10. That's the highest I can go, given that I don't agree with almost anything in the book. I have to dock points for not actually <laughs> being convinced by anything, but... It's a pretty fun read. So far, so far. So th there's, then there's kind of two ways to answer the question, are we the crazy one? If you take Evola's axioms, first principles, if you agree with those, just going into the book, then mm. yes, Jack and Levi are the crazy ones because we're moderns and we're filthy, we're filthy fucking moderns with all this technology and stuff. Um, So it's very binary, whereas if you don't agree with his principles, then Jack and Levi aren't the crazy ones, and, and Evel is batshit crazy. But the, the, the thing is, there, there are a lot of people who would largely agree with a lot of his first principles, and they come out all woo-woo, but they're not fascists. But they would still think mm -hmm. that we're the crazy ones, because we don't agree with all the, a lot of the claims that he makes, in, especially the perennialist claims about like comparative mythology. It's a... Uh... It's a weird one. Would you recommend it? Oh, uh, I don't find it enjoyable. I, 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 I find it's, oh, it's look, it's interesting. It's a very dense book. If you're into kind of ancient world studies, or maybe even if you're into sort of modern history and you want to like get a look into what was happening in Europe at the time, or the crazy philosophy stuff that was going on, I guess I could see why you'd read it. Or if you wanted to, yeah, if you're into ancient world studies stuff or like Greek mythology and stuff, yeah, I, I'd recommend it. Sure, why not? <laughs> or if you're into any woo-woo <laughs> stuff, if you, if you, if you like uh, Vedic uh, medicine or yoga. And uh, I guess if you're a bit of a, a hippy-dippy uh, new age type, but you also want to know how you fascist. can enforce a uh, strong caste system with a god god king as the head of state um, then this is the book for you <laughs> if you didn't have enough fascism in your yoga class <laughs> yeah would you recommend it i would recommend it to a very particular type of person i would more i would recommend it to someone like me i i find pleasure in Fairly consistent 
intellectual systems that are just very different to my own. It's like stepping into an alternate Such. reality and where, where nothing, nothing intuitively makes sense and you need to follow the laws of the land. If you enjoy that sort of experience and, you, and you, you're willing to read a fairly dense book, then yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it. But that's a, that is a recommendation to a very small portion of the population. Well, for your sake, Jack, I, I hope that you can make a living out of it. <laughs> Just remember Marie Kondo, right, made a living out of cleaning up people's houses. So if she could do it, you can. <laughs> All right, that's it for this time. Next episode, we're going to do an episode on the second part of Revolt Against the Modern World, which is Evola's weird history. Of, of the human race. If you Are didn't we doing think episode one was was weird enough, like it gets weirder. It gets like way it gets weirder. Stranger. Yeah, that's great. But next time we'll be reading the Scum Manifesto. <laughs> yes, stay tuned <laughs> for somebody who probably doesn't <laughs> agree with Evla's views on gender. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>